How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show podcast episode... Oh, what is this? 50... Mm-mm. Mm-mm. 59? Mm-mm. No. 58? No. 50, 60? Episode 60, boys! What? Woo! Dude, I'm getting senior in my age. I yes. know, it's crazy. To be fair, I have it written in front of me on a laptop. You do not. You yeah. Just, you just go off the old noggin. Normally I go off the cuff, yeah. yeah. Oh, I just don't, it's a director's corner. Oh, yeah, today's a director's corner, episode 60. We're doing yeah. Soderbergh later in the show. Yeah, Love cool, it. cool. Looking forward to it. How are you, Jake? I'm good. You know, there's yeah. a lot of panic out in the streets lately. Yeah, the world's sort of falling apart a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you, were make, <laughs> you went to, um, is it, I guess it would be a travel agency type thing, or just, uh, currency exchange. A currency exchange at yeah. like a travel, because I, as we know, there'll be a pre-records in a couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, going back to Nashville. Uh, I'm going to Nashville for a few weeks, so I needed some of the USD. Uh, that USD. Um, and yeah. yeah. I, I love you making some jokes, some wisecracks yeah, to get on like, the counter. Yeah, I think she, she liked she it. Liked, she liked, she was having fun. Because she probably deals with it a lot, but like people, you know, carrying a bunch of you know, paper, mm. tissue paper packets and what, being like, oh my, God, I need to exchange to to Madagascar or something like. And then you come in, you're like, yeah, people are pretty crazy, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I'm uh, I'm very chill about it. I, yeah, I, I think the world. I think we had a really good conversation before the show about did, yeah. the sort of overreactory nature uh, of humans in crisis. Um, in Australia, at least, there are people beating each other up over toilet paper, so yeah. that's... It's going crazy. That's pretty funny. The memes... Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty funny. The memes are crazy, oh, yeah. you know, but... Um, but we're here to talk about film, not the world ending, so... Yeah. the world's the end film, with Simon We Pegg. watched the film about the world ending, but we didn't, so... Jake, yeah, no, what have you not. caught in the last week? Um, it's funny, because I've, I've caught a lot, but uh, a lot in, in context of, you mentioned earlier, pre-records, those will be coming back very shortly, so a lot of films in context with that, or in preparation for that, or just a big trilogy week for me, otherwise. Yeah, the probably one of the defining the, trilogies. The tr- of the- yeah, defining trilogies in cinema, mm-hmm. American cinema. I watched the Godfather trilogy for the first time ever, mm. much to my brother's very... Uh, Big sigh of relief. He's been trying to get me for probably years. Watch The Godfather. Watch The Godfather. You're a film student. You're a film graduate. Watch The God. And I got to the point where I just didn't watch it to piss him off, yeah. to be honest. But I finally caved in. I was, it's been on my computer desk for a long time. Uh, the trilogy that he has. He has the, yes. the, the Coppola Restoration Edition or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched all three films over the last week. Um, yeah, some excellent, excellent stuff. I'm in the camp of, I think the original is better than the second film. Ah, even if I, I know that is a controversial debate. Yeah, please. it's very mixed, you know, which one's better, the first or second. I think I love the ambitious nature of, of both of those films, especially the second one acting as a prequel and a sequel, uh, mm. cutting back between, uh, Vito's rise and, uh, and, uh, Al Pacino's sort of fall in the same span of time uh, years apart and I love the ambitiousness of that and holy crap De Niro doing a Marlon Brando impression is like whoa dude whoa. I'm, I'm baffled as to how I've never seen the second one yet mm. I watched the first one not last year but probably the year before maybe back in 2017 maybe okay. 2016 first just before or when you started doing screen no, it would have been when I started. Maybe first year. Okay. Um, You're a good boy, they say. Yeah. Yeah. It was <laughs> Well, I've, I've got plenty on the blacklist, but Godfather mm. Part 1 is not one. But I just never watched the second and the third one, which 
honestly, you know, the ending of the first one... It's a pretty it, good ending. It's a good ending. Yeah. Um, but obviously, given there's pretty high praise for at least the first two with so-so reactions on the third one. Yeah, I, I have ideas about the third one I'll get into in a moment. Yeah, but, yeah. but I just never, yeah, never picked up another one. I've only got the first one on DVD, which is kind of weird. Or maybe I do have the second one on DVD, I just never watched it yet. Okay, is it two disc? I think so, yeah. Probably, because this, the only other film I've seen with an intermission baked into the disc is Gone with the Wind. Which was literally a two-sided disc. I've never seen that before. Found that in the op shop the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, for a dollar. It might be cool to have just for like, even though it's on DVD, it's 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 cool. I've never seen it before where the disc is printed on both sides of the disc. Mm. Um, it's Godfather Part Two is the only other film I've seen with a baked-in intermission. Interesting. So it might be a two-disc thing on DVD. Jeremiah Johnson um, was one I saw an intermission in, like embedded in the DVD. Wow. Okay. Um, which is a Robert Redford film from like 73, I think, or 74. Okay. I've always encouraged you to watch it. It's one of my favourite sort of off-the-beaten-track westerns. It's not quite uh, your traditional western, but it's it's set in that sort of frontiersman okay. time. So it's a really good film. Would love to do it one week on the show. Yeah. I do love delving back into those sort of 60s, 50s sort of... Yeah. I'm anything ex- with a western, really. I'm ex- <laughs> I think this year especially we're going to have a lot of time to really dig in there because mm. we, we've gone as... Far back as sixties, I think our oldest film is The Graduate now, sixty seven. Yeah. So um, I think if we need I'm it. correct, so Well we like switching between like obviously the film of the weeks from this year. So it's nice to mm. flip back between contemporary and, and past stuff because yeah. especially if you can try and unearth a sort of hidden gem from a, a Yeah, exactly. And bygone era that no one would watch nowadays, or at least without a bit of uh, coercing. So. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, even like, you know, doing research when we did our Parasite episode a few weeks back, I ran into The Housemaid, which is a 1960 mm. South Korean film. And that was like, wow, this is really awesome. Like, I would love to do a discussion of a film like that. So, I mean, not mm. everyone necessarily has heard of, but it's a nice little hidden gem on YouTube. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are your uh, yeah. thoughts about the third one? So, the third one, I understand what's going on. I think a lot of the issues I saw, I read like letterbox reviews and I've read some of the, like the official critic reviews that came in. Back in ninety, I think it was nineteen ninety when it came out, same year as Goodfellas, and it did kind of feel like a. Uh, I think the thing I love about because the whole thing about the Godfather is like that family, the Corleone family, mm-hmm. and I think as much as I love the idea of passing on the torch from one generation to another, and we get that, we get that with Vito and um, Michael. I'm, I kept forgetting opportunity name, but you know Vito and Michael, those are the two generations we need to follow, and I feel mm-hmm. like it starts going a little too far in the story by the third one because now we're dealing with Al Pacino's daughter played by Sofia Coppola and that was another big thing about this film mm. is she is not a good actress she's yeah. a great film director she's amazing because she's the reason that the film Her exists so I'll give her that as who mm. but acting wise yeah she got very she got pwned by the mm. critics in, the, in this and I can see why she was not very good in the film uh, very you know, so she plays a well, bl- bratty character. Well, at the end of the day, but... you take a gamble when you put your daughter or son exactly. in a film. Exactly. Because if they're not good, then it just looks like bias. Mm. But if they're good, then it's like, oh, well, there was actual justifiable reason yeah, to make exactly. that decision. But then it's like, oh, Jaded Smith. Oh, oh, why are you in this film? Oh, yeah. he's hit or miss. I, like I think uh, Clint Eastwood's son, Scott Eastwood's in the uh, same, yeah. same vein. Oh, my God. But I just had a flashback. I saw him in a romance film, like a cowboy romance film. Yeah. The lo- the young- longest something. Oh. God, do you know this? You know what no. 2015, I think it was. But I feel like I probably would have... I've, I've known 
most of the time he's just in B movies now. Yeah, he's just, yeah. Uh, Clint, that film I don't think Clint's sucked. ever put him in a film. Okay. It would be interesting to see if he actually will put him in one. I would have to double check that, but I can't remember any Clint Eastwood films off the top of my head that have Scott Eastwood in them. So. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, but like it goes back to that, you know, it's it's a bit nitpicky stuff with the part three. Mm. It's just not like a masterpiece that you can easily see part one and two being. Yeah. And I think it also just goes in the fact that, like I said, I, I personally was happy with the story in part one and two. Mm. I think it dragged itself along. It started like, involving like the Catholic Church and all stuff, which I get, you know, mafia, Italians, like it all fits, but it just felt like it was digging too deep into a redemption story that just So, Jack, didn't here's, need. here's the big question. Okay. Who does a gangster movie better, Coppola or Scorsese? Ooh. I'm going to say Scorsese because I think he's done it enough times really well. I still think The Irishman is my favourite gangster film, even though I can acknowledge that Godfather Part 1 is more authentic. Mm-hmm. In terms of, it feels like I'm watching actual gangsters, not actors. I think that comes back to, especially in the first hour at that wedding, it mm. feels almost... Oh, my God. Strangely, like, observant in the very, sense that, very, like, yeah. I'm more seeing a documentary of something. It feels so authentic, and yeah. I can give The Godfather Part 1 that. Most authentic gangster film ever. And Part 2 as well, like, even... You know, when De Niro, Jan Vito's going to, like, these plays and the, mm. like, the puppetry stuff that is a weirdly reoccurring theme in those films, um, as well as, like, opening on some sort of celebration or wedding-esque event. The first half an hour of all three of them is, mm. like, at an event. Um, I think, compared to Scorsese, I think, because, you know, with Goodfellas and The Irishman, and I still haven't seen Casino yet. And The not. Departed. Departed's another one there. I, th- I think all of those films, they... they I don't know if any of them are necessarily better than the first Godfather, but because he's done it so well, so consistently, mm-hmm. while Godfather Part Three is sort of a letdown in that regard, it was yeah very. They're all long films. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but that third one feels really long. Yeah, I I, mm. I think it comes back to uh, at least in uh, one of them, like you said, is has been a little bit more consistent with his performances. The older he's gotten, and I don't know if you could say the same thing about. Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, it'd be right, interesting okay. to see. Uh, I, I I seem to remember I checked this up on an actual podcast. What okay. uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's last film was, but it, he tends to he did some sl- crap towards the end of his career. Yeah, like honest. What's that one with Robin Williams in it? I'm um, just having a quick. Yeah, peruse. this one from and I've I haven't seen it, but that got like people were like, "What in the world is this?" Yeah, I, <laughs> from what I understand, at least. I think it comes back to... Uh, let me see if I can go most recent. I think we're definitely going to do Godfather Part 1 on this show at some point. Oh, for sure. Because we haven't done a Copula Director's Corner yet. We did Apocalypse Now, but that was not... Uh, that didn't round to a number five, so... So, the latest film that he did as a director was... Uh, Twixt, I think. Twixt. Oh, my apologies. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, Francis Ford Coppola's still alive, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I thought he was... Oh, he yeah. did Jack with Robin Williams. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Oh, Jack. that's not with the kid, yeah. What? In 1990... Man, that's crazy to think mm. that's the kind of film that he did. That's, that's a bit weird. I mean, that's another thing with Part 3 is it's done so far later than... Like, part 1 was 72, Part 2 was 74, and then Part 1 was 16... Part 3 was 16 years later. It's like... It felt like an afterthought. It really did. And I didn't need that story. And they wanted to do a fourth one. But I think the writer passed away because it was the same writer. So the last film done by Francis Ford Coppola with a runtime 
I want to specify. Because the, the latest one it says on this thing is at 2015, but it doesn't have a run time, so I don't know. Okay. Uh, strange. Very strange. Um, but the last one with the run time is called Twixt from Twixt. 2011. 1889 okay. minutes. It's... He's too busy recutting uh, Apocalypse now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because it's like people give people like George Lucas a lot of shit, but it's like, I mean... I it happens like to some other people. Some direct, yeah. yeah. It's not just Lucas or Spielberg, yeah. um, believe it or not. Um, no, even but... though, I think Francis, I think he's, I think, about 10 years older than both of them, so... Okay. Uh, I think if I, I recall in his making of Apocalypse Now, which we did talk about quite in big detail. On, Very big detail. You did your research that week. I did. I did a lot of research. <laughs> this is really fascinating. Yeah, he was about, yeah. I think he's about 10 years older. He was kind of their senior, like gotcha, overseer gotcha. of those two, but really interesting stuff. Well, I've yeah. caught a couple of things too mm. in the last week. Oh, did you have anything else you wanted to add? I do about? have one other film, but you can go first. Oh, I just about... Any of the Godfathers? Uh, no, no I'm, yeah, the God, excellent, excellent trilogy, especially those first two films. But um, yeah, those are my first ever takeaways on the Godfather trilogy. And I might have some more developed feelings later in life. Who knows? Yeah, well, on re- revisits. Obviously, uh, so I actually forgot to add a film in that I watched just before I got back. And I just realized, um, which was recommended by uh, Sarah. Okay. Um, she recommended me watching Denmark. I don't know if I did talk about it on the that show. That doesn't sound familiar, no. Um, I watched it, um, or maybe three, four weeks ago. I completely forgot to put it in my log. I was like looking through my log, and I was like, I never added that film. Right. Um, Slipped your mind. It was an interesting film uh, from 2019 about a... Uh, it's... I think it's it, like it's... It's an Irish, like an Irish man who's kind of at the bottom end of his life, and he just decides that he finds out that the prisons in Denmark are like luxury hotel resorts. So okay. he elects to rob a bank in order to <laughs> to get arrested. To get arrested in Denmark. That's cool. Um, I like that. Interesting idea. premise. Yeah, yeah, I gave it a solid three stars. There was okay. Wasn't like anything particularly like I didn't find it particularly funny, and I think it needed to be funnier. Maybe was it meant to be a comedy comedy or? No, it sort of walked that weird line of comedy and serious, but um, it honestly probably should have pushed more towards comedy than serious. Um, I know Cold Pursuit did that last year, and I had some very strong words against that yes. film for the mixed, yeah, comedy vibe. Watch some weird things. Oh, uh, weird things. Watch some bad things too. Oh, uh, what a shock! Unfortunately, <laughs> um, I was I I didn't even I was making this point to you off the show, and I actually didn't even finish it because we just started talking about Blue Jay again because we love yes. Blue Jay so much. Um, but I was saying, I've been being hard on you lately. You're watching a lot of crap on Netflix. But to be fair, you did a lot of that last week and you found some absolute gems on Netflix. Yeah. So It's sort of a weird um, thing because you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, it's a complete and, gamble. Like, there were some films from last year that were just like, they had such, admittedly, and I, I, this is, you know, they had names that were questionable. Like, mm. I remember a particular one, Band of Robbers. Which was the oh, yeah. modern day retelling of uh, what was it Huckleberry Finch and I can't remember the other. It's a it's a yeah yeah a, <laughs> those a novel, guys. But it was a really good film. Okay, and it was just sort of just like, but it has. I mean, it's, it's called Band of Robbers. Yeah. It's not that's like yeah, questionable. It, it feels title. like there's a hundred other films called Band of Robbers. Yeah. Exactly. So it, you know, it's a risk. Or things like mm. Denmark, where it's like, eh, we'll see what we get. And we get yeah. something. Is it Nebraska or is it something else? Huh? Exactly. What's right. a bad film named after like a country or something? Like I can't say Denmark because that was an alright film, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. But uh, uh, I, watched, I can't say Madagascar either because that was actually uh, that was fun. I'll dive into some of the ones that we're going to talk about later with our film of the week. Yes, um, of course. But 
uh, I watched this thing called True Caribbean Pirates, and this actually is going to lead to an interesting sort of. I have this uh, okay. knack for watching these. They're, they're Discovery Channel documentaries, and they do these weird thing Discovery Channel documentaries where, when they retell history. They have some really informative stuff, but they always do the worst reenactment footage. Oh, no. And I just, I sorry, I can't <laughs> go past it. Like, the, the remake of some of their, like, pirate reenactments. This was a 2006 documentary about, basically, the rise of pirates in the Caribbean. Okay. Um, which actually was, you know, I mean, that's in the heart, that's just after the first Pirates of the Caribbean film came out. I think it was on the verge of the second one coming out. What year again, sorry? 2006. I mean, the third one was almost out. I think okay. the third one was 2007. Okay. So, um, but it was really informative, so you can't criticise it yeah, for that. It's yeah, just the yeah. reenactments are always so laughably bad. That uh. it's just, but it actually helps to bridge the narrative than it's rather than just someone talking. So it's like, and it must have been so much fun to make right, them. Like on paper, it's a good idea to have them, but then the execution is They're like, really done bad. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty laughable. But Discovery Channel docos are made with like <laughs> no budgets too. So Yeah, you uh, got to give them that. Break. They're essentially just historians talking to a camera and, and then they have the stuff to fill the void. But honestly, like, really informative stuff. But there was a really interesting thing that I, that brought up. They t- started talking about... I don't know if you've ever heard of the pirates. Uh, have you heard of, like, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed? They're, like, the two female pirates in history that are, like... As someone who's a huge fan of the video game Uncharted 4, I should know them, but okay. I do not. Um, so. Well, I like Black Flag, so it's like, <laughs> you know... Uh, Never finished it. But I had this really intriguing... Uh, okay. Um, wait. <laughs> We're <laughs> but, a video game podcast now. Uh, <laughs> but I found this really interesting, Jake, because it felt like, you know, obviously with the surge of contemporary cinema, it's really baffling to me there has never been a movie about, Bon, like, Anne okay. Bonnie or Mary Reed. And All they right. both ended up crossing each other and, act like in history and actually served on the same crew with a male pirate and that was like unheard of at the time and I just think to myself and there was like a weird sort of love triangle dynamic mm. between the three and I just thought this is like printing money in my head <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Producer does that yeah. not sound crazy to you that like that not sounds a... like an awesome story yeah exactly dude like and it came just and in history it came after Blackbeard had died who was the most notorious pirate in history so it's right. like so you got pirating was on right the back yeah. and I guess I guess it comes back to we had some serious fatigue following the Pirates of the Caribbean movies finally coming to an end I I guess so I mean I, I was never a huge fan of, I've seen the first two oh those. first three are great okay yeah I like the first three we definitely have a fatigue of that franchise now I would yes. say but mm. um. But obviously, everyone knows that franchise was solely based off the the ride at Disneyland. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's literally what it was based. <laughs> Is off. that still there? That ride? Yeah, yeah, okay. I've been on it. Um, oh, but sweet. I just was really curious. Like that's what led to me being like, man. If, so I'm saying this right now. Yeah. If I get to direct, they're like Zeke. We're giving you fifty million dollars. What are you making? I am making an Anne Bonny film. That's awesome. That'd be the one I make. Absolutely. So, so that's for you. I'm still on the Frankenstein page. Yeah, we I might, found my we, one. I found we, my one. Yeah. yeah, we might be in like a universal lot one day. You never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, sadly, in following this, sadly, uh, caught a film that you know, on the surface, <laughs> you got a cast of Anne Hathaway, Ben Affleck, Rosie oh, Perez. I know what you're about to talk and about. And Willem Dafoe. I was excited for this. You think to yourself, man, that's that's a pretty promising cast. I'll buy into that. Mm. The last thing he wanted was by far the worst 2020 film I've seen so far. Damn. Um, and that's when I say worst 2020 film, I mean the worst film made this year or released this okay. year. 
So um, that would include Miss Americana, Birds of Prey. Um, precisely. Yeah. Um, and and obviously the you know um, you know other another films. film we might mention later in the show. But it just was confusing, weird, made no sense. It felt like these like these actors were just conned into making this film. Right. Okay. I. I like seriously took some points off. Like I've lost a lot. Like, like Anne Hathaway. Ever since in the post Batman Rises world, mm. I just I just find her floundering a lot in productions. I just can't seem to find. So maybe post Interstellar would probably be the more accurate one. I don't right. know which one came for twenty fourteen. No, Interstellar was after. Okay, after Batman. So maybe post that. I can't think of any film that I really enjoyed watching her in. Okay, off the top of my head. What she's been in? What she's been in, in the last six years? Mm. Like I know she's in stuff, but I just can't think of any off the top of my head. I haven't seen her in a on my theater screen very much. Uh, I well, like her. Ocean's Eight. Oh yeah, that's that's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, given yeah. the. But yeah, pretty much. I mean, if I go, let's have a look. See. Yeah, I'll fr- I'll throw it in there now. You don't have to wait to the end of the show. But neither of us watched Ocean's Eight in preparation for this film. No, unfortunately not. So uh, uh, I will hope to get that out this week though. Oh, Ocean's 8? I literally... Yeah, I'm keen to watch uh, it. She's apparently in Dark Waters, which you talked about last week on the show, coming out. Oh, right, with Mark Ruffalo. Uh, the Hustle. And oh, yeah, which yeah, neither of us watched. Colossal, I, I heard, is pretty good. Okay. Um, so maybe I'll have to revisit that That's mm. uh, or visit that. Um, but yeah, just shocking. Um, Willem <laughs> Dafoe is a great actor, as we all know. I loved At Eternity's, uh, At Eternity's Gate with him in it. Yeah, I still um, need to watch that. Oh, you definitely do. Um, and it's like, we're not disputing these people have talent, although I'm sorry, I don't think Ben Affleck's talented at all. Oh. He just keeps proving me right every single time. And yes, well, I we know. Talk, we talked about him, I, I think it was Girl. last week. Yeah. Yeah, with we, the new film he's in. But it, it just comes back to, I just think he was really well casted. But in he's, Girl, he's right. monotone, he makes no, he looks... And I know he's suffering a lot of exterior problems to his acting career with his like alcoholism yeah. and stuff like that. But get out of the Batman train, just, you're dude, a good man. Just, come on, mate, just mm. go away for a while. Like I don't know, but he is just, it his yeah. fault? In is he bad in this film specifically? Yeah, I mean he's okay. right. Like the writing doesn't help him. I'm not okay. lying. Yeah, yeah. But it seems to be a consistently thing. I mean, there are like he has. I feel like he just has way more negatives than positives. Mm. And I know we've we've uh, we, honestly it's probably one of the biggest back and forth updates we've had on this show is the Ben where we sit with Ben Affleck because <laughs> you know you're like oh well Chasing Aiming's great but then he has like a film like this and it's Chasing like, Amy is pretty good yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know it's yeah he just keeps reinforcing uh, that film is the last thing anyone wanted <laughs> um, so applause applause Zeke in in I'll give you that. contrast to this film though I had a very another pleasant documentary experience Ooh, uh, pleasant. Uh, with ZZ Top, the little old band from Texas. Now it's okay. really it's really funny because th- uh, this doco has just been released. I'm pretty sure on Netflix. Um, so a 2020 release? No, I don't think it's a 2020. I think it's a 2019 release, but it's just come oh, it's on. It's just Netflix. come on Netflix now. Okay. Um, and I'll it's see. about obviously it's a a reflective documentary about the band ZZ Top. And the funny thing is, don't I personally don't know a lot about this band. I know I've talked about band documentaries, and you know. Projected a bias and uh, on some bands that I actually like, like the band. Um, the band. But I didn't know anything about ZZ Top. And okay. it's this three-piece group, and it's a really entertaining doco. It, it's informative. It does some really cool um, 
story reenactments with animation, which I really like. Uh, yeah. I um, love your little tower esque sort of yeah um, approach. But I like when documentaries try and freshen up, sort of like, oh well, it's three, you know elderly, well, the older men who are talking about their their career uprising and recording certain albums, mm. and instead of just listening to them or cutting to, I don't know, another angle of them talking, it, it adds that element of interest, because it's like, oh, there's this animation of these characters, and they're animated, and it just sort of adds to their quirk. It, it doesn't work yeah. with every band, but with a band as quirky as these guys, it worked it, really yeah, mo- well. Yeah, it's motivated through that. Yeah, and it just... And then they'd cut intercut it with performances of the three of them in the studio. And it just, like, I love that sort of blend of it's, oh, it's not like Miss Americana, where yep. it's like, it's just this puff piece, really, essentially, for mm. this uh, this just icon. Put a, yeah, just put a camera oh, on this just person. Literally just cut to a Taylor Swift concert. It's like, that's so lame and boring. Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. like essentially, you might as well just ask someone in the crowd to film it because 90% of them are. Like, Yeah, I will agree with you because like, I'm not as harsh on Miss Americana as you, but I agree that the only good things I take from that doco is just what they were lucky enough to stumble upon in an observation sense. Yeah. But this doco, it sounds like they've actually put effort into stylizing elements, into creating elements like the yeah. animations that reflect the band. You know, It's yeah. not just put a camera on and a person. And then cutting to them in a studio, just rifting with each other and then mm. playing out some of their songs chronologically. And they, as they make the songs, they then cut back to the song, which is a trick that Scorsese did with the band too, which okay. I really liked. Nice. Um, he intercut the, con- the final concert that they had with like exploring the band and it's why it works so well. Cause it's like, this is their last ever show and they're talking about how they got to that point. Mm. So cutting to the band dynamics in between songs and then even sh- cutting to songs that they recorded in a more stylized environment. It just works really well in the last waltz and it works really well here. Um, I think uh, I couldn't fault it too much. I guess it was maybe just a little bit uh, potentially like, Sometimes it looked a little like generic doco sort of stuff, which is mm. a little bit like, oh, I'm going to duck it. Like, it's not quite like fire, which felt... There was always some energy unique. going on, yeah. Yeah, um, but I really did... I had a lot of positives from that f- for that thing awesome. that was comes back to just trying out a show on Netflix or a, a doco yeah. on Netflix. You will strike gold every now and then. That's true. Yeah, Um do you want to go to your one before I go to my Yeah, I'm last happy one? to talk a bit about a little movie I called uh, Saw called First Man. Oh, well, that's not quite a little movie. Uh, it's definitely the... not a little movie. It's actually a very big movie. Yeah. Someone... Um, so this is, of course... Someone say out of this world. <laughs> I mean, a character says, makes the same fucking joke in the movie, <laughs> I should say that. <laughs> uh, no, this is Damien Chazelle's, I guess, fourth film. Of course, he did uh, the... I can't remember. It's something about a park bench. That's his first film. It's something about a park bench. Mm-hmm. But then you have Whiplash and La La Land, which, of course, I love those two films to death. <laughs> Um, and I watched First Man uh, without teasing too much in preparation for a little something we might have cooking up later in the show mm. uh, or later, as in maybe episodes away from the show, yes. not later in today's show, unfortunately. Yes. But um, no, I look, I really love his other films and I think he's got some great moments of direction. I love the way he shoots all of the space stuff in terms of having cameras rigged mm. on to space. It just feels like a grounded sort of angle you're getting in space. Mm. It's not... You know, with Interstellar, you're getting these wide angles, like the camera's like a million miles away, and you're getting these nice wide landscapes, which I'm kind of glad we didn't get in this film. I like that we're getting a bit of a different perspective of it. It's very more a POV. Yeah, exactly. Sort it's, of. it's sort of the POV of um, of Ryan Gosling's character. I Neil Armstrong. Character being Neil, Neil Armstrong, yeah. exactly. But 
it's a very long film. It's like two hours twenty, and it does drag. The, and the, a lot of the domestic stuff with his family, I was just it kind of didn't mm. really do it too much for me. I liked all the space. Stuff. I like the production design. You know, when he's when he's in that machine that's spinning him around, mm-hmm. it's like that looks really cool. It's like it doesn't look CGI, but it also you could tell there's some cool effects going on to make that happen. Yeah, so I, like that. I think you hit the nail on the head when you were like, it feels more like a gravity than a. Yeah, it feels more like a gravity than like an interstellar mm. or than a 2001. I mean, straight up, if I think of any space astronaut films from the last mm. 20 to 30 years of film, you know, it's pretty hard to get a bad performance out of an astronaut, it looks like. Because, like, you look at Apollo 13, it's like every performance in that's great. Mm. But the, I don't know, the story's fine. It's like, I find a lot of these story like, it's very hard to get a bad movie out of a space epic. Right. Well, I like, think you get that... It, at least a that, grounded space epic, yeah, they not obviously, a sci-fi one. As long as they get the, the the effects of space and the visual side of that looking great, mm. then you can get away with the... From a technical point, it's a really, really great Admittedly, film. you throw enough money at that, though, you can fix that problem very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got stuff like Ad Astra, which, from a cinematography point of view, is a little more experimental, you know, like using different lights and stuff to simulate the sun in certain shots. Mm-hmm. And that was cool and experimental, but you're right. Obviously, the narrative of... I don't want to say obviously, but... Ultimately, the narrative's flat in that regard. Yeah, I I agree. I think that's how I that was my take from First Man and Gravity and all. And like the reason Interstellar is probably held above a lot of them is because it try it tries something completely different. It takes ideas and concepts in science mm. and it puts them into practice in a film script. And I mean that comes back to I mean we had a very early on episode about Christopher Nolan, but it's obviously yeah, that meti- meticulous nature of him and what it, and him and his brother Jonathan for sure. Uh, in terms of yeah, they're like the writing and getting the technical side of this film. I mean, they are, they are geniuses who just so happen to be making films. So yeah, makes sense that Interstellar has that level of dedication and and science to it. I'm I mean I'm glad Chazelle's definitely take took a turn towards that stuff. Yeah, it's definitely like his first non musical. It like, there's no hints of Whiplash or La La Land in this film. Yeah, which I can appreciate from a direction standpoint, mm-hmm. but. I, again, I think it was like <clears throat> the script was overstuffed and there were just issues here and there. And to, to your point about exploring interesting ideas, yeah. there's a point about an hour 30 in this film where they they, they sort of focus on the, the lashback of how much money is being funded into mm-hmm. sp- space exploration. And as much as you know, we can get political on the show and talk about how I think military spending should be way less and more money should be spent at NASA, mm-hmm. but it's cool to see that exploration in this film where people are like, why are we spending so much money this is obviously pre-moon landing, mm-hmm. so you can understand where that mindset comes from. But it's like, that's an idea that's brought up and then dropped. And it's like, ah, oh, that could have been cool. Mm. But it's not about, it's about Neil Armstrong, so. Yeah, and I think we've yeah. had enough of, I don't think this is by far the first Neil Armstrong biopic we've had. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I... even the Apollo 11 doco is perfect. Mm. Perfect, yeah. perfect, perfect exploration of what happened on that night and that that journey they took, mm-hmm. rather. And I think that just comes back to we've just got to, you know, if we're going to do more space, extra, it just felt like more of a safe movie more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, unfortunately safe. Yeah, I agree. and I think the time it came out, it was in, like, October. 2018, yeah. Yeah, so it was sitting nicely in that sort of, well, admittedly, like, the early build to the award season. Mm. Like, had it been successful, it definitely would have been pushed more at the yeah. sort of award ceremony. I don't think it, it was unsuccessful. It it got a couple of nods, or it won like the effects, and I, I think it might have won editing too. Mm. Which 
it won sound editing or something. It got some technical awards, but it, you know, Ryan Gosling didn't get nominated for best actor, that kind of no. thing, you know. So, so. interesting, interesting thing. Well, the yeah. only other film I caught was uh, it's a, an odd one, but I just saw it on on Prime and was like, why not? Oh, uh, Jumped right in. Uh, it was Long Shot, which I think you caught. You've caught before. Yes, Long Shot. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I've um, with Seth Rogen. And yes, Charlie's Ferron. Yes. I <laughs> uh, was real pleasantly surprised by this one. Mm. I think this film was really funny because it came out in like probably this time, around this time last year. Yeah, it was early last year, I remember And that. I feel like it really went under the radar because of, well, I think it was a lot to do with the Avengers sort of situation. It was like, Probably, it was- yeah. I know locally, like, I know a lot of our friends were actually very high on this film. Yeah. Which was surprising to me, and, and you're very high on this film too. It's I been- really enjoyed it. Yeah. it was, I, they had a really good dynamic. Uh, there was a lot of... Um, sort of subtle. I think, like, I mean, Charlize Theron has definitely been put on this sort of feminism platform. Like, I feel like she is the right, marketability. With Mad Max and Bombshell. And, exactly. She yeah. definitely feels like this actress that. I feel like when I think of oh, like who embodies sort of and Tully, right? Too and um, yeah, like, sort of. Fem- I think Tully is less sort of feministic, sort of facelift than it appears. I think Tully's a. I think it's a good film, yeah. more about motherhood than it is like. But she like she always feels like the side. embodiment of a of the woman, like you know what I mean, like, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the woman, and I think that's really like it's good that we they have such a platform the character. Woman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like the I love like, that. Yeah. Like whether it be uh, she explores every different aspect of what it means to be a woman. Yeah, and she like does she has in, that range, but she's got that class. In, not just in, that, yeah. she also manages to do. I really kind of turn in a corner with her. I wasn't the biggest fan of her, but I like that she explores that identity through different ways too, like mm. different genres. Like this is a comedy with Seth Rogen still manages to get yeah. that sort of message across. And uh, she definitely has that dedication because you're right. She has this prestige that I was like, she did this kind of movie. That's surprising. Well, that was that was that's what comes surprising to me. It's a Point Grey film, so that's a yeah. that's a Seth Rogen uh, film. Yeah. Um, and I I think to myself, I'm like, this is interesting that she does, and she's not uh, afraid of delving into these sort of roles. Like there was another one that she did, Young Adult, a few years okay. ago, that she plays a pretty. She plays actually kind of more an antagonist than a protagonist and a person who's severely obsessed and crippled with high school. And I think that's the first time I saw her and I was like, kind of a fan of hers. She's actually mm. got like, she's really willing to take on different roles. And I mean, you've got films like Bombshell, which for the most part people are very, oh, that was just Oscar bait 101, basically. Um, yeah, in a, in a way. It was definitely very, mm, very surface level. Yeah. Stuff like I felt like Jay Roach was more convinced trying to be vice than actually mm. tell tell the story of these you know women who are sort harassed of, and everything. Yeah, sort of sort of feels like uh, the vice of this uh, of this, this past year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this past year. Um, but yeah, no, it was a real pleasant surprise. They had great chemistry. Like like we said, you were so surprised to see her in this film, and I was too. And she doesn't feel like she's phoning it in or anything like Absolutely that at all. No, not. She's she's giving this just as much effort as she gives other other films and. Mm. It's re- it was a really pleasant surprise. It made me laugh quite a bit. Uh, even, <laughs> and I already know like towards the end what scenes we're laughing at. Yeah, yeah, and it just it's actually like yeah. I, I and I really like I really like Seth Rogen. I think I like Seth Rogen more than I like James Franco. I think if I think about it, if you, okay, I, I know they get paired paired together a lot. I mean, they both do a lot of quirky stuff. I have that Seth Rogen love from him doing Fifty Fifty. 
which is a film I adore to death. And yeah. it's like, I love that he can do stuff like that. Um, and then he can go on to produce a film like Good Boys, which yes. is probably a similar thing for you watching this film. For me, Good Boys is like, ah, oh, that was a fun, that was a fun time. Yeah. You know. No, but. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I was, I was pretty strong on this. Um, another, another like pleasant surprise was seeing uh, his name's O'Shea Jackson Jr., who was actually also in Inga Goes West. Ah, there you um, go, from the we, other week, yeah. Yeah, so it was really cool to see him. I guess now he might be pushing more into the Seth Rogen circle of friends, which makes me really excited. <laughs> see a bit more w- of him, yeah. Well, yeah, I really, exactly. And I really liked, like, that's why I kind of like This Is The End, because it sort of felt like, even though there are problems with that film, yeah, it's that, just a I, fun... I, it's rewatchable, for sure. Oh, I've watched it, I think, three or four times. It's just funny. <laughs> like, sometimes you got to switch the brain off and just enjoy a film. But this film actually had some decent levels to it. I really enjoyed it, and... Honestly, I would like to see these two in a film again, I think. Mm, I'm not sure what context fair. you'd get them in a film together, but it would be really interesting. A Quiet Place Part 2. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's all I've right. seen this week. Right. Well, we are, we are. I think between the two of us, we saved a bit of time, and we've been promising for weeks and weeks that we would at least address the BoJack Horseman finale because we have not talked about the second half of season six. It's been five ever. weeks, I think. Five. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, uh, we're looking at the, what, the 9th of March today. So and, it came uh, out 26th or 27th of January. Very late January. Maybe yeah. like the 30th, yeah. So I think five weeks, that's enough time. Yeah, I think we'll jump in. Sorry if you just wanted to listen to Ocean's Eleven review. <laughs> and, you know, five years down the line, I'm not going to spoil Bojack for you. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's time that we talk about the, just the... F- Finale, because I like I I've had a lot of things to say, and I've I've gone out there and I've talked about it, but mm. not necessarily on this podcast with you, especially. No, this is now a Bojack spoiler discussion. Just before we break into our film of the week, mm, yeah, we'll be brave just to jump ahead a few minutes. Otherwise, mm. um, so yeah, but yeah, ended end of January. I was obviously very excited because I remember going into season six, being like, okay, you know, I I love the show, I adore it to death, mm-hmm. but then the cliffhanger they have in the midpoint of the season was like, oh my God. So I jumped right in, streamed it all in a day, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, I think ultimately, I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm probably going to have that bias of automatically loving the show. We have had a few mm-hmm. weeks to digest, which is good. Yep. And I pretty much love everything they did with it, except it did feel really rushed. You could tell that they had the show ripped away from them by Netflix pretty last minute. It's it's amazing that happened too. Yeah. Given... The show was yielding awards too. It was reckoning. doing great. I mean, it, it's it's one. I remember this video of Raphael Bob Waxberg at the premiere of those final set of episodes, mm. and he's just listing off like all of the awards that the show's gone. It's been nominated for Emmys and everything, and yeah. like this show is so well loved. So you're right. It is a surprise to see it ripped away in that in that you know sort of in a way that was just completely unexpected. Yeah, I, I think. Um... I also visited the second half of the season. Look, looking forward to it. I, yeah. I finally caught up in time for the start of season six um, with the show completely. So I managed to yeah. watch this season sort of as a whole, as, as, as a whole, and learn with the contemporary audience uh, like at the same time. So that was really cool. Obviously, I had a much more compacted run with the show. You more organically developed yeah, your feelings to it. Yeah, I've been watching like as it released since season four, I would say. Mm. And I, I was, for the most part, I was pretty positive about the show. Um, mm. And I really did like the first half of the season. And I'm, I feel like, yeah, like it's been a couple of weeks to digest. 
And unfortunately, yeah, I I can definitely feel the the rushness really hinder. I don't want to say it hinders the show, but at the end of the day, it, your love for something can only go so far. And I think if mm. you look at it solely from a critical point of view, the film really did suffer because of how rushed the ending had to to mm. come along. I mean, you look at another show that you love very much, Jake, mm. Breaking Bad, and how they were allowed. To you, like they pretty much essentially wrapped the show at the end of season four, like because they didn't know if they were getting the last season. Right, they 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 saved themselves from a writing perspective of oh well, you know this happens to Gus Fring and Walt sort of wins in this short scenario. Yes, so even though there's plenty of places to go, we could survive an ending here. Yes, if they need it because they didn't have the the they confirmation. Sure, yeah, if it was greenlit or not. But when they were given that last season, then they could proceed with plans. And I think that comes back to a bit of foresight. I think. The show really suffered not knowing that the rug was going to be pulled from under them. Because mm. if if um, the showrunner had known, hey, you're only getting six seasons, then he might have been able to develop ideas earlier in season five and exactly. season four. Exactly, and I think the big the big players here is the breakup between with spoilers now the breakup between uh, Mr. Peanut Butter and his uh, and his girlfriend. Uh, I'm forgetting her name. The pug. Uh, the, uh, pickles. Pickles, that's right. Um, I think that kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Princess Carolyn going off and getting married with... Uh, Judah. Judah. It's sort of... Like, it's there, but again, it's like... It's, these are the sort of arcs It's like we could have seen more, especially Todd's mum. Like, oh, that, that really is... comes out of nowhere, Yeah, and that's sort of the things, like, especially... The reason why, and this show did have its mid-season finale and end with a very similar sort of cliffhanger-esque moment that Breaking Bad had, and that's why I like bringing it as the comparative sort Mm. of situation, where they knew where, or they kind of knew they only had... Well, Breaking Bad has what fourteen? Is it fourteen episodes? Uh, in the that last, last season? season actually has sixteen. Sixteen. So it's, it's almost so it's, identical it's to identical the Bojack then. situation. Yeah. Um, so eight and eight as well. Eight and eight. So yeah. they both were given the same. Well, I guess Breaking Bad has forty minute episodes. Yeah, compared exactly. To, so there's technically more running time they had. Yeah, but uh, but I didn't ever feel season f- the final season of Breaking Bad collectively was rushed in any shape or form. Every think was served correctly. The, yeah. the cliffhanger in Breaking Bad for the mid-season finale is Hank's discovery of Walt finally yeah. being Heisenberg. And this one in uh, juxtaposed was... Is Hollyhock and, and really the wider world learning about his involvement with Sarah with, Lynn's death and, and the whole Peggy situation. Yeah, and... <sighs> and I think you're right. I think it, with Breaking Bad, they very smartly like hit the hammer on the head in the first episode back where Hank and him have like a full-on punch-out and then in Bojack, it takes a couple of episodes. And it's nice to have that time yeah. with him at school, but I know where you're coming from when you say that we didn't need that much time no, at school. No, we didn't. We we were left... We were, It was so... We I think we waste two episodes, and those two episodes that we waste in that sort of situation, just... They just... Yeah, it's just not a... It, it feels like the story was moving too slow, and they, they didn't realise they were running out of track sometimes, maybe. Um, right. I think it comes back to maybe even the discovery of of Bojack's involvement with Sarah Lynn maybe shouldn't have come at the mid-season point. Maybe it should have come... Even earlier? Even or? Well, yeah, maybe. Or at least bringing in Judah earlier and stuff like that. Like right. People that needed to... Relationships that should have developed in the first half of the season that essentially only get wrapped up in the the second half. Like, like and that's probably plays in with the race. Like, if, if Princess Carolyn and Judah... 
express their feelings earlier in the, that last season, yeah. then it would have made their ending make more sense if Todd's storyline with his mum developed earlier than yeah. what it did. Um, then I mean, that's one that could have developed, like, I'm talking seasons earlier, not yeah. necessarily early in season six, because it, it didn't really... But essentially, I just yeah. didn't think they knew what to do with Todd's character that early on. I mm. think they literally... That's the problem that this show has that Breaking Bad didn't have, and it's a weird, it's a weird comparison in one sense, but it it also isn't because it's like they knew where every character's start and end point was, yeah, earlier than that finale season, and like they knew where Skylar's character was going to end up, Walt Junior's character, Hank, and they both Especially have relatively Hank, yeah. the size and ensemble cast. Yeah, I mean, no, I honestly think it's a pretty good example to um, to compare. I rather, yeah. so I think for the most part. The biggest problem is there was so much focus on the Bojack storylines that a lot of those supplementary characters that were a part of... And I mean, I know it's it's called Bojack Horseman. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, when you have this many characters and you want us to get invested in all these characters, you've also got to pay off these characters mm. the same way. And because they essentially... I really think they didn't know what to do with Todd's character post-season three. Um, right. Well, because that's the thing. He was always the the comic relief, which which is fine in that regard of like everyone else has their bigger issues. So that, but you're right. But to bring in sort of a more serious storyline for Todd in terms of I guess growing up or maturing or getting yeah. the relationship with his mum back, it came in very late in the series, not just the season. Yeah, and I yeah. think people like that, and like when you have things like that, and you're like, oh, now you're supposed to care about this stuff, and they had to quickly kind of put together a story it's sort mm. of like oh well you're taking away from the other stuff that's going on it's like i would have rather they'd be consistent with todd if they were going to give him yeah exactly keep him that way and i think the same same like other characters actually did get episodes of development um i think i think like, i do i really like where um diane's whole trajectory went and sort of ended i think she's probably got the best pace storyline yeah over season six but i think she was always the b to to Bojack, it was always going to be uh, like they were the two characters. I think the showrunner, um, mm. you know, Ra- well, uh, Raphael Bob Waxberg. I'm g- it's a full name. Uh, was it RBW? <laughs> RBW. RBW. I'm going to say that. RBW cared about Bojack and Diane's story the most. I think, yep. and I think and that's, that's why they why get a 15 minute ending. <laughs> that's and I think that's why they get the best payoff. But I actually think that takes away because, like, I guess for me, I cared. M- I like those storylines, but I actually thought I cared more about what happened to, like, PC, like Princess right, Carolyn's yeah. storyline. They do have a great final conversation. They, and, and you know yes. what's cool as well? Netflix put out very recently a first and last uh, line for each character, and there's a 15-minute video of every character in the show and their first line and last line. Yeah. And it's cool because PCs especially, the first line is to do with, um, you know, oh, I'm always looking out for you sort of thing. And then I can't remember exactly. And then the last line is like, oh, I've got someone you can talk to, which I thought was a clever little putting the responsibility off herself onto someone else. Yeah. Like, that's perfect. Not every line is that clever. Yeah, and unfortunately, course, the, yeah. The, the ending, oh, the second last episode, which is halfway down, is a little... Yeah, uh, the view from halfway down, that's right. The view from halfway down, which is a little bit of a... It's got a lot of heart and a lot of cleverness but at mm. the same time it comes back to it almost feels like a, an episode that shouldn't have only been 20 minutes long because there were some times where they took it felt like they took more effort in other they they made mo- it's very confusing because i i walked away for essentially being like oh, okay well i get where he wanted to go he just didn't 
get there the way he wanted to get there. He didn't get enough time to let it all But at the same time, then you've got things where other shows take the time they're given and and use... And you can be like, oh, well, like we said, uh, Breaking Bad had twice the length of their episodes, Mm. but they always had twice the length of their episodes. Yeah, exactly. Like, they knew the pace of their show in that regard. And And it's not a a case of knowing the pace. It's that Netflix literally put him in the dust in that way. But you're right, it's... It's just planning things a little earlier throughout the time. Yeah, I think you needed those to... those 16th episodes, and yeah, we got them in two spaces of eight. Mm-hmm. They had 16 episodes to end the series, yeah. and I think a lot of it was thrown right at the end in those last five, maybe. Yeah, so. I agree. I think, um, uh, and I mean, the whole Penny storyline is completely just thrown out. Yeah, that... And considering how many years, and I know you had slightly less time because you binged from mm-hmm. one to five, I think. You had seasons one yeah. to five to watch. Um, as someone who, yeah, was But that waiting. story starts at the end of season two. Yeah, exactly. But even having seen that and waited years for that payoff, and all that was always what I wanted to see is that come And all back. you got was a conversation and that was it. Yeah, a phone call, which was a great phone call, but yeah, you're right. And then a conversation between Penny and Charlotte, but you're it. right, it doesn't really go anywhere. That's not the nail in the coffin. And I get that Sarah Lynn is the nail in the coffin. I get that. But we spent so many years on yeah. the Penny Charlotte storyline. But I, I think it comes back to maybe the world's changed enough in five years that they, maybe they were too apprehensive to approach that topic. But I don't think so because they've already had the the sort of the idea of the Me Too movement and BoJack being cancelled and having to find the perfect balance of ending the show on is he redempt is he redeemed or not? Mm. And I think they do find a pretty perfect balance of he's in jail, he's being caught out. He's sort of lost his friends, but there's still a melancholic bit of sweetness to it where he's still a person. He's still, I mean, he was, he, he went 15 episodes after rehab was maybe 14 without drinking. And then the whole thing he has with Todd in the last episode was, well, he's, he's going to hit those milestones again and then he's going to drink. And then, and that's, you know, sort of the circle of Mm. life in that regard. So I really love their approach from that point of involving the Me Too movement, involving these, the idea of predators in Hollywood. And Mm. so I don't think they were ashamed to tackle that. And I think they did that really well. I think it's, it's a shame that it got such a, a really, a really poor payoff. Um, a, a real for which part for the penny sort of storyline. Yeah, I, feel like I the, agree with that. And I think that because it's such a huge anchor of the show too. I mean, the ending, that moment in the gave me an audible response in season but it was two. Also, in season two, yeah, yeah. And it gave me that sort of like, but it also gave me that like, wow, the show is trying to do something with it, and it's really try. It's not just a comedy like cartoon show yeah, there's a serious story happening but underlining. when you try and take on that serious story and you give such a really a minimal payoff because the reality is i feel like he wrote himself into a corner that he couldn't get out because he had too many storylines going on that he just couldn't wrap that up in the time that he was given right um sort of pleads to maybe the the short-sightedness of the, the creator because he knew his relationship with netflix probably was tenuous at best in the latter seasons but i guess he always thought maybe with maybe potentially with all the awards that the show won that they might keep it going for longer well i mean they're they're open about being caught off guard by the cancellation and we should acknowledge that there are you know there are several writers but he is definitely the key head he's the one who makes the final tick so um i think i don't know I mean, it, yeah, I just feel like with Netflix too, if they'd maybe taken a step back and looked at how other shows on Netflix don't get very long shelf lives, the yeah. fact that theirs 
went on to be it's the longest running isn't it or is it the in... it's one of the longest running because yeah. it was up there with um house of cards it's obviously got more episodes i think than house of cards yes that was the other one that ran and i mean at the end of the day they were the they were the they were pioneers of yeah. netflix they really were um but at the end of the day i guess you've got to assume i mean most tv shows do only last five six seasons yeah so to you've got to sort of have that for and other shows have done it like i mean how i met your mother began and ended i think like four times like they didn't right, think they were going okay. past season six or season seven yeah. and they kept just sticking it you know until because it kept making money and it kept like producing so they kept producing seasons until they got yeah. told to stop and then essentially they kind of bum rushed the ending because they they ran out of time because yeah. they had too many things to develop and they needed to... And that's why those two... The last two episodes are so... What? Like, we're jumping this and jumping this time and we're jumping... Yeah. Well, ep- I remember in Futurama, it was a similar thing where they didn't realise the fourth season was... And, of course, they came back later. Mm-hmm. But at the end of season four, they had to scramble basically through their entire library of episodes they made for season four and rearrange the one that sort of had the most definitive-esque ending and mm-hmm. put it right at the end... And it was one where it was sort of suggestive of, you know, Fry and Leela kind of get into a relationship. But again, it was so suggestive and so subtle that it's a great nifty little ending, but not for the entire series. But it was all they could do at the time. Yeah. And then, of course, the movies came out and they had a more definitive stamp on their relationship. And then, of course, they made even more episodes after that. So mm-hmm. Futurama got, even it's a brilliant show, but it got kind of fucked around a lot with Fox and Comedy Central and all that, but similar yeah, situation. Yeah, I, th- I think that's just a thing that when you have a show like this, you've just got to have a bit of a bit of foresight and know that you're not going to be a re- like they're the ones with the money yeah. and they do get to tell you when it's up. I'm sorry, but you've got to sort of be ready to fit, you know. And I think they did ready a pretty good. They did job. pretty good job. I agree. But I, I'm being very picky about just saying it's rushed. For me, the rushed part of the show was a footnote at best. Mm-hmm. But um, I honestly think the show's like, I mean, if you haven't seen it yet and you're listening to us spoil it, watch it, man. Watch yeah, the whole absolutely. show. It's a brilliant I mean, show. It comes back, and I have the same opinion about how you met your mother. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone, it's religiously hated the ending of that show, but it's still got nine seasons of really, right, really good stuff, really funny stuff, some really endearing stuff, and some actually really good sort of anecdotes to how to live life and really relatable i've always found i have this uncanny ability of watching an episode on random when i'm like going through the show mm. and it's always an episode that's tied to my life because of the message in the episode yeah, um, yeah. which is kind of funny um, kind of funny nothing good happens after 2 a.m uh, <laughs> but that's uh we uh, with our bojack conversation i'm happy yeah i think it was good to get off our chest because we've I, i'm sure we have people listening to you see love bojack and we've been kind of I mean, a lot of this show over the last 20, 40 episodes, we've been talking about it. You've watched it. You started watching while yeah, recording yeah. the show. So I think it's good to have that closure, much like the show does. Well, this is the first first show that has sort of came and went on in our like sort of yeah, time. Yeah, in a line. way, definitely. Um, well, at least one that was definitively talked about on the show. Yeah, um, especially in the sense that you watched from episode one to the final episode, you watched and were talking about it as this you podcast went. Absolutely. Life. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it's really cool to have that sort of conversation. But yeah. yeah, I'm happy to move into our film of the week. Absolutely. Let's do it. But Jake, what are we watching? So for our director's corner in episode 60, this week we're watching Ocean's Eleven. It's never been done before. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? You want to knock over a casino. Three casinos? 
Danny Ocean, a gangster, assembles a group of 11 people in an effort to steal money from three popular casinos owned by his rival, Terry Benedict. Terry Benedict. This film was released on the 7th of December, 2001 in the US, apparently, and was directed apparently. by Steven Soderbergh, Steven who Soderbergh. is our latest director corner. Woo! Ironically, he's Ocean 12. He's our 12th director. Is he a 12th oh, director? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Would be cool right. if he was the 11th. Ah, oh, damn. Missed opportunity. We had to do Spike Jones instead. Oh, oh what a shame. We have to watch her again. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, Soderbergh's kind of a funny one because he's sort of... He's got a wide range of films. He really does. But you're going to have to help me, Zeke, because I've seen... I believe I've seen five of his films now. Let me just quickly double check how many I've seen. Okay. You may continue. Yeah, what no, five have you seen? I've seen, so uh, in preparation for this episode, I watched all three from the Ocean's Trilogy 11, as 12, did 13, I. as Let's did you. Chris Very Pye nice, five. very nice. Um, the first one I saw of his, and I believe it was episode uh, uh, 48, I think it was when we did Jojo Rabbit, that I first watched Logan Lucky, which would have been, actually no, that would have been my second Soderbergh film. Uh, my first caper, though, of his. So the f- four of his five I've seen are all caper heist films of a kind. Mm-hmm. And the other one, just would it, would it be my first Soderbergh film, was Contagion. Completely different type a of film. A very strange film. But I really love Contagion. I really do. Mm. I don't think you're as I high was, as I was me, on the though. middle of the road for Contagion. Right. Um, it's kind of funny, given the events of the world. I've also watched that this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> Were you toilet paper pressed to your chest? So I, I did not have toilet paper pressed away. No. So I know his latest film is The Laundromat, which yes. has not gotten the greatest reviews. Okay. I have not That's on Netflix, it. I know. I haven't caught it yet. Um, I'm having a quick peruse through the films that I have seen from him. I've actually seen a lot more than that. I, too, okay. have also seen all the Ocean films. You! Uh, I saw two of them this week. I'd seen Ocean's yeah, Eleven last seen year. you've seen Ocean's Eleven before, yes. Um, but 12 and 13 I caught this week. Um... Uh, that's why we didn't talk about them in the first half of the show, because they kind of play into here. Yeah, we'll talk about it more here than we were going to before. Um, perusing through there, I have seen... Five, six, seven, eight. My goodness. I have seen eight of his films. Do yep, it's looking right. like I've seen eight. Eight so of what, his feature films. So what are the other ones you've seen? So, like I said, I've seen all three Ocean films. Yep. Logan Lucky, two. Yep. Which is probably... Spoiler alert, my favourite film from him. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Logan Lucky is as good as Ocean's Eleven. I have seen Magic Mike. Um, oh. <laughs> and I actually didn't <laughs> have is... anything bad to say about Magic Mike. Oh, it well, was there you go. perfectly fine. Really good casting. Oh, that explains his relationship with, with Tatum. Yeah, I've yeah. seen The Informant, uh, which is Matt oh, Damon. Oh, nice. Um, wasn't a fan of The Informant. Okay, um, not so nice. High Flying Bird was a big fan of High Flying mm. Bird, which is a film on Netflix right now that you should check out. Uh, he made it, I think he shot it all on an iPhone. Oh, wow. So, real interesting uh, sort of premise. He likes to do these sort of odd films where he, like, challenges himself a bit, which I quite like. I can respect that from a directing standpoint because you get your Scorsese, Spielbergs, that it feels like part of their shtick is that they do a wide variety of stories Mm -hmm. with similar directing techniques, but then you have your other directors, your Tarantinos, that are very specifically, this is their technique, this is their style. I think Soderbergh bounces around between a lot of it, especially when I compare this film to Contagion. Very mm. different films. They don't feel like a Soderbergh. Well, you know, you can't point at those two and be like, those are Soderbergh's styles. Yeah. But um, well, excellent they're, they're films. They're the I eight thought. that I've caught. Okay. So the Ocean films, Contagion, Logan Lucky, Magic Mike, High Flying Bird, and The Informant. Um, there you so go. A little bit of a slightly larger repertoire. 
to you. But um, like we've said, that's a really good point about Soderbergh films. They don't... I honestly... Uh, apart from maybe there's a lot of dialogue... Uh, he does like a lot of dialogue in his films. Yeah, I think... And we're going to talk about the trilogy as a whole in a minute, I feel like. I think the second one definitely has the thing with dialogue more than his other films, I've noticed. But you've seen more than me, so you might have a better grasp on um, it. I think there's enough in there, I think. But the dialogue's all contextual-based, too, because Logan Lucky doesn't have... I don't feel as much dialogue, but that's more to do with the characters in Logan Lucky. Right, uh, they're quite quirky characters. They're also... I mean, he plays more... He, he likes hammy stuff, and that's a consistent mm. thing. I think he, he very much is like people are almost... That people are people. People are characters or caricatures. Oh, definitely, yep. And that's a really an identifiable, like identifiable trait with sort of the direction he takes with each person. I mean, the uniqueness with Ocean's Eleven is how distinct each one of the eleven are. Mm, um, I'd love to talk about that soon. The uh, ensemble, if you will, and they really put the effort into distinctly, like distinctively identifying each one as different to one another. Yeah, in terms of character traits, like their their quirkiness, but also in terms of how they relate to the heist and how they're going to help the team at Absolutely. large. So, yeah. And I think Logan Lucky has a very similar trait, you know, things like making Daniel Craig bleach blonde hair and... Yeah, Adam and, Driver's one hand or arm. Yep, and, and Channing Tatum's sort of the most grounded out of all of them, but he's sort of He's the, definitely the, the Clooney of that series where he's, well, he's like the, sort of the every guy-esque. Yeah, and he's kind of smarter than every, every yeah, other Yeah, well, he's one. the head of the caper. He's the one that has the plans and the ideas. And But the, I think the thing that I like about his films is, yeah, like each character feels very... I can remember his characters. Mm, absolutely. He has very memorable characters, and that's, that's definitely a real... Or, like that's totally to do it's with the direction. Skill. It's absolutely his a presentation skill. of each person. Like the fact that like this film came out in two thousand one, Ocean's Eleven, and I even I like like if I went like a few years without seeing this film, I would at least remember some of their distinct characteristics. You know, particularly Clooney and Brad Pitt and Matt Damon. Matt Damon, yeah. You know, and you know Don Cheadle and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> Him and his accent. Uh, it's funny because I laughed with the accent because I've really only seen Don Cheadle and obviously the Avengers films yeah. and stuff, but apparently that he got a lot of crap for that accent. It's it's so I mean it's heavy. It's kind of yeah, cheesy. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, it, the fact that you call it a caper film, I kind of like because it feels caper. The word cape like a caper film. It just feels like a kind of a classic cheesy Hollywood sort of thing. Yeah. Like I've I've seen heist films from over the years. Like I think The Sting is one of my favorite. Oh, yeah. Uh, caper sort of films and hell uh, we did one in our third episode of american animals yeah That's sort of a caper film yeah and i mean you you think back and like they they did a different sort of presentation with that film that i really like yeah. but all four of the guys i didn't feel like had very super distinct personalities off the top yeah. of my head they weren't like hammy characters. It but was more because, the presentation yeah, that and, made it. Unique. And the fact that they are based on real people and the real yeah. people themselves, it makes them less characters. Yeah, and I think that was deliberate. Like, obviously, yeah, that's yeah, a deliberate course. choice. It's like, I mean, it comes back to, this isn't a true story. This is the story. Yeah, sort of exactly. Like, like, the presentation is very factual, whereas this one is, well, it's it's fictionalised. It's, it's fun. And Soderbergh wants you, right, to mem- remember who these characters are and yeah. which one's which and which quirks that they have and all that. You know, there's everything, this film, everything in Ocean's Eleven is just sort of like putting all of your favourite sort of heist tropes all into one film and then that's the film you get. Um, And that doesn't make the film bad at all. In fact, it 
essentially kind of any film that came after this just felt like it discount felt so, yeah exactly <laughs> discount like a bit of a ripper. well it's funny you mention that because I do have some a lot of things that I noticed some are very specific references mm-hmm. to scenes in Ocean's Eleven uh, I don't want to well, actually some of them will involve 12 and 13 but um, others are going to be more broad things because yeah. like, obviously you have stuff like Rick and Morty which is like an entire episode spoofing essentially this film mm-hmm. But then you have moments like in Get Smart when they're doing the dance through the laser. That's a scene from Ocean's 12. Yeah. Um, I know Futurama had a very similar casino heist, very similar to, uh, I guess, 11 and 13, mm-hmm. but mostly 11 in terms of the specifics of getting in and out of the vault. Um, I know Prison Break had a similar thing where you can't touch the ground, but you've got to yeah. get the object in the middle of the room. Oh, that, that's Mission Impossible as well, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was Actually, Mission Impossible was probably earlier. I mean, like uh, there yeah. are like there are definitely films that came before this, but this is definitely the most contemporary example and probably mm-hmm. the one that's most widely watched by people. So that's why it comes back to the thing we remember the most when we watch the film. I think right. Uh, his biggest strength is at least in Ocean's Eleven is definitely the casting. I love mm. the ensemble cast and and putting George Clooney at the head who's someone who just looks like classic Hollywood. I think that's one of his biggest marketable traits as an actor, is he just feels... He's got that look, yeah. He does. He Handsome, does. rugged, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> you put, you took him out of today's timeline, and you plonk him in the 1960s or the 70s, he just wouldn't look out of place. He'd yeah, just... and he'd probably be playing the same sort of characters. Yeah. Maybe a bit more overly sexist, but still the same characters just in the 50s. <laughs> exactly, and I think that's why people appreciate him. I have always liked when Clooney, like, I still think my favourite Clooney film is The Descendants from Mm. Alexander Payne, and I think it's more to do with the fact that that's the first time you kind of get the earth shattered with, with, like, that shattered view of George Clooney, where it's like, he plays more a person, not this... Nespresso ad making man. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. Doing the ads and that presentation, and you're right because I I read a lot of the films that I've seen with George Clooney in. I haven't seen The Descendants. It sounds like I should because he actually plays a different person. Yeah. for once in that film. Because I I think of films like Burn After Reading and Fantastic Mr. Fox, like the the many stereo. He's even Welcome to Collingwood, which we did episode fourteen. Yeah, like he's the same person in all of these, and it works a lot yeah. of the time. He's typecast in a good way in that regard, but that's who I think I want to see George Clooney. So seeing him as part of this cast, and you have all the other stars in there. Spread this sort of feels well, like yeah. the first film that really captured the George Clooney esque p- performance. Yeah. Well, everything I just listed, I'm pretty sure came out after, after this yeah. film. Exactly. So this is definitely the one where I feel like this is where he started to move into those types of films. Yeah. Um, because he just plays a suave, smart man pretty well. Mm. And it's the same thing with Brad Pitt. I feel like this. This film, at least up until more recent history, Brad Pitt definitely also had a very similar sort of stage in the next 10 to 15 years of his career where he mm. just kind of played a cool, calm, collected, also smart guy. Because I think he's, he's in Burn After Reading too, and yeah. the same sort of, a little more goofy in that one, <laughs> yeah. but the same type of role. And he came off, I guess, like Seven and Fight Club and stuff, but there's still that sort of element of like he's the suave cool man he's very athletic I, yeah like i think that. in his earlier career when he was like when you have things like seven and fight club that was that was a little bit more but up in a post oceans 11 world i think he mm. moved there was definitely a period of time where he just moved into that sort of he's brad pitt so yeah, he's going exactly. to play you know a brad pitt they both became more names that are just sort of like so not like their name is just marketable so they just yeah. ended up playing these marketable people because mm. it helped with marketing you very rarely, it comes back to the same thing I said about Tom Hanks. It's applied to these two too. They mm. didn't play bad guys. They always played 
most of the time good guys. Or even like an, a variation of, yeah, like even in this world where they're the, the robbers, they're the thieves, they're still the good guys of the story. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, like, like more recent, like I think Brad Pitt, the older he's gotten, he's definitely moved more into challenging himself once again, which is really good. I mean, you know, say what you will about Ad Astra, but he's definitely... Uh, it was a good role. Even if he was a bit flat, it's a different role than he usually does. Or in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But he's still playing a cool dude, so... Yeah, I think <laughs> he still falls under that I don't know. Trope, I, I was like, yeah. well, I watched a scene from Moneyball the other day, and I was just like, oh, God, you're even cool uh, around nerds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you, know, you know what's funny? I got Moneyball sitting on my desk, and I still haven't seen yeah. it yet. But I, I think uh, the benefit of this film is it feel like it, it was a showcase for a lot of actors that now it's like people like Casey Affleck and stuff who have smaller yeah, roles, yeah. but it was still a good place, a good platform for them to sort of get shot. I mean, like obviously he's got other films now that he's now more synonymous with like Manchester by the sea yeah, and stuff like that. that. Comes to Don Cheadle was the Avengers guy now, you yeah, know, so but um, you're right. They all have those roles. It's kind of cool to there. see them in a film that's probably a little bit before. I mean, I think the only film I can think of that came before this that had Casey Affleck in it was American Pie. Where he, <laughs> where he plays the older brother of one of the other characters. Gotcha. So he's, he's just sort of wasting there. He literally bit. is a phone call scene. And you're like, oh, it's Casey Affleck. Cool. Yeah. Like, oh, so it's enough. cool to see those people kind of before, yeah, they're yeah. pushed more into their mainstream now known of roles. Which uh, is interesting because I actually have a list here of potential cast that didn't make the film. So I'm about to list you a name of people who are almost starring alongside George Clooney, Brad Pitt and all of that. So approached to be in the film back in the day was Mike Myers, Bruce Willis, Ewan McGregor, Alan Arkin, Ralph Fiennes, the Wilson brothers, both Luke and Owen, Johnny Depp, and Mark Wahlberg. I could see the Wilsons. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I mean, I think Bruce Willis actually gets the second one, so... Oh, yeah, right, because he's cameo into... And he plays Bruce Willis. Yeah, literally. Still one of the dumbest, that whole... Yeah, I'm going to... That Roberts scene play. in... Oh, don't, don't piss me off, that scene in number two. It just was, was so all, stupid. Yeah. I think between... We won't talk about the trilogy too much, no. but I think the second one we both agreed was not very good. Yeah, and the third one's a return to form with a very reserved Pacino performance. Yeah, but I think that even with the thing with the third one, it lacks a heart and a cleverness that the first one has. It's yes. still clever in terms of its heist, but in terms of the thematics under, in terms of how I think this film's a love story disguised as a heist, mm-hmm. the third one doesn't have any of that cleverness. So Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. I think it has... And it's sort of like... You know, it's like you say, it was it was parodied in, in the later season of Rick and Morty, but the mm. idea of assembling a team back in 2001 was a little bit more foreign or at least yeah, when exactly. it when it came to assembling a team it was more out of like job circumstance rather than anything it was not so much a caper the, ca- yeah, the idea yeah. of a caper wasn't very synonymous in that mm. sort of time frame in cinema so to have uh it was a, a big thing ironically it was a big thing in the, the seven, early 70s and the late 60s these sort of types of films but they went away for a while mm. and i think this is this is soderbergh who i think is let's see how old you are buddy uh, <laughs> you talking to your dog or something? Uh, How old are you, buddy? No, oh, it doesn't have his information. But yeah, like uh, yeah, you know, he's gone Wikipedia. He's, for he's that probably one. like yeah. I would say he grew up in the sort of sixties and seventies, maybe eighties. Yeah, is a good chance. So he grew up on those sort of types of films. He must have just really taken away and seen this as a homage to those sort of caper films of the early seventies. Well, it's funny, yeah, because you're right. Two thousand one, definitely for these this star-studded cast is like a great 
mm-hmm. sort of um, thing to talk about. And I, it's funny because if you tried to do that today, you would either do the female spin-off, which I already have done in Ocean's mm-hmm. 8. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of keen to watch that. I am too. Just in the sense that um, uh, there definitely was that a female absence in the third one, which I think actually... You know, I don't want to be like a, you know, her. I mean, we just did pass International Women's Day. No, but I mean, it really did affect my view. And if like, oh, where are the girls? I kind of wanted a little more mm-hmm. of that, like the wives and stuff. And in the it. only female character in the 13 was basically just there to seduce so, <laughs> Matt Damon <laughs> with a big nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, you know, the funny thing about yeah. this film, this is yeah. like in a pre-born world too. So this was a really mm. good platform for Matt Damon. We have to take into effect... Post the only thing. Well, this he, was good, the Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, post Goodwill yeah, Hunting. Yeah. So it was a different direction for him to take himself, and it definitely starts to look like this film felt like when Matt Damon was really starting to grow into his own. He didn't feel like a kid anymore. He started. Yeah. To, he definitely has that presence in this film of oh, he's the last one to be selected. He's the one that's always been held back. Like no, nope, you don't go out. Let yeah. the big boys play. But you're yeah. right as an actor. But he's you, definitely marketed as the sort of the third of the eleven that we yeah supposed exactly to really... which hey is is you know you're still ahead of you know Casey Affleck and stuff yeah yeah like he's the wild card character yeah. which is what he serves in in essentially all three films but they yeah I mean like we said we're not going to talk about twelve and thirteen too much but yeah like we both agree twelve just feels rushed makes no sense in a lot of ways yeah I think the big issues I had with twelve because I feel I feel like. We've had we have issues with the film, but in different places. Yeah. So I think you had a bit of issue with just how cheesy it got with the transitions and stuff. Yeah, things like that, and like I get it, sort of try to be that homage, but sometimes it got a bit ridiculous. I feel like characters they didn't know what to do with half the characters, and the plot yeah. I think is very paper thin. Like it's compared to the first one, it's a real departure from. They're very like it felt like he had a very clear narrative in the first one, and yeah. actually, admittedly, at least had a very clear narrative in the third one. But the second one, it just felt sort of lost in the fold. Like yeah, I almost, I, I almost, I basically couldn't follow what was happening in the sense that I just yeah. lost that engagement. And I, I exactly, I, I agree. It was the lack of engagement. I, like I like I only watched the third, like thirteen yesterday. And it was a really easy two-hour sit. I yeah. had no problem from start to finish watching that film. It kept me entertained. And I, like you said, I am actually keen to watch Ocean's 8 because I think it'll probably keep my attention the whole way through. Um, by downsizing the, the cast, only eight people could also help too. That's with, a good point, yeah. With keeping it uh, focused a little bit more. And there's less people doing less things that make the narrative probably hopefully more coherent. Yeah. Jury's still out on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll see. I'll see if I can catch it the next week. I'll mm-hmm. be curious to talk about following up next week. But mm-hmm. I think the thing I hate as well about the second one is that the editing and the camera work was just so stylistically different from the mm-hmm. other two films. Like, I watched the first one and I'm like, you know, so, and even in Logan Lucky, he uses the camera very well. Lots of cool dollies and like oh, yeah. a lot of cool focus pulling work in Logan Lucky. And in Ocean's Eleven, there's a lot of cool, you know, mixing dollies with zooms and a lot of that sort of casing the place mm-hmm. with the camera. And there's a really cool smoothness to it and you know it's a smooth story with smooth characters so you want that and then the second one is like half of the scenes are handheld yeah and they're trying to do a lot of weird back and forth dialogue comedy which it doesn't work because not that the actors can't pull it off but because the camera doesn't know what to do yeah if you want to have back and forth dialogue you either have the camera keep swinging back between the two characters or you cut to them and Mm. what does it do it just leaves a handheld camera matt damon yeah it's like so he's just talking to a wall for two minutes 
Yeah, it's a very confusing stylistic change. Yeah, and I'm glad he brought it all back in the third one. Yeah, I definitely feel like that. Um, with the first one, though, yeah, I mean, the biggest the biggest strength of that film is definitely... Uh, it felt very thorough in what it was trying to achieve. Mm. And like I said, I think the characterization of each separate member of the heist team. And, you know, and by extension, you know, the the antagonist of the film and Julia Roberts as yeah, a character, yeah. they all feel like they have enough time on screen that I can understand what's coherently going on, what every you know, character needs. I mean, at the end of the day, the heist crew doesn't need more than their introductions because they're a heist crew. We know what their goal is. Exactly. They don't have any, like, you give, um, you give a, oh my God, how a Don Cheadle, you give him like, okay, well you're, you're going to take care of this thing that takes the lights out. Yes. And boom, that's his little arc there. You introduce him, you have him do that. And that you're right, that's plenty of time for him and his part of the heist to be concluded. Yeah. So they don't need yeah. all character arcs. We we don't we're not asking for eleven character arcs. Yeah, exactly. Focus, you know, you focus on your Clooney. And I mean, essentially, I don't even think Brad Pitt really has a character arc in the film. He's sort of just the yeah, right hand no. man. He's the he's essentially the more the He's more the the general of the heist. It feels like. Yeah, whereas... I feel like he's sort of the leader without the stakes. Yes, because you have George Clooney. He has the stakes in trying to win his wife back, and I love that. We don't really know that's what he's doing until the very end of the film. Mm-hmm. And I love that, and I would love to talk about how that's structured. But I think Brad Pitt has that sort of, same sort of authority, mm-hmm. but without the stakes, where he doesn't have to. If someone needs to tell George Clooney he's out of the job, it's going to be Brad Pitt. Yeah. So that's kind of his role in the group, which I love. Yeah, he's definitely meant to be the sort of counterbalance to Clooney's character, and mm. I mean Matt, and and you keep it to essentially just the three. Matt Damon also has that sort of he needs to respect the game. You yeah, know? yeah. Matt Damon's character is essentially the audience. He's the he's the person who's taken okay, along yeah. with the the heist, who's kind of like, oh, why do I feel like I'm keeping keep me in the loop? Tell me everything that's going on, and then they don't they withhold stuff. So he when he discovers things are going actually according to plan, not against the plan. Right, yeah. We are as the audience too. So essentially he's our placeholder in in the first film at least. Uh, I, as the I audience can buy that. Oh, now, now we're talking about him, it is weird at the start when everyone's introduced outside the house and they're like, oh, this is a dangerous mission. If you don't want any, <clears throat> if you don't want any involvement, don't come in. And he's the only one that doesn't, he needs a kick in the ass to walk into mm. the... And now that I think about it, it's weird that they have him do that and then be the sort of the reckless renegade who wants to jump in. Mm. I just thought about it. I'm like, does that click? I don't know. I mean, I think, like I said, maybe it's audience reaction. Like, we're almost apprehensive to go in on the job. And it's sort of like when we're in there, we're sort of like, oh, man, this is all pretty cool. Yeah, okay. He's uh, he's definitely got the wide-eyed baby baby face sort of oh wow this is really cool i feel really cool right now oh, poor matt damon <laughs> he's, all, he's always the baby face yeah. wide-eyed oh, well he did downsize that was literally <laughs> about to say that <laughs> um, so oh, um man but yeah no I, I mean this is a this is a film that like i don't think it's my favorite film from soderbergh i think i really enjoyed high flying bird for its sort of unique ambition that they had okay yeah um but i think logan lucky is definitely my my favorite from him it's uh, funny because like, logan lucky is the same film it is really the same. You have this big event while everyone's distracting you. Do the heist. There's a sort of a family element of the main character wants to get the family back. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care. It's the same film. I love that there's a different backdrop, and I almost wish he did that more instead of making Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13, Ocean's 8, or whatever. It's so entertaining, though. And it was so They're very like, entertaining. I think it comes back to maybe I've become a bigger fan of people like Adam Driver. 
Um, right, well, the new cast, the new actors are yeah, coming into town. And it's, it's funny how it almost feels like an evolution, like we can almost see the evolution of how this film has undergone in the different, the, I think Logan Lucky came out in 2016. I think 17, well, in that realm. So 15, so, 16 years exactly, after the film. So yeah. it's like amazing what a decade and a half can do to this style of film where he, he takes, like you said, a, a unique backdrop in like, you know, like redneck Virginia where it's like yeah. Yeah, everyone's kind of like, they, they're very much playing up the types of being rednecks and how they all communicate in this. He, oh, I mean, he always comments on like an almost interbred community, <laughs> how they all know each other's sisters and cousins yeah, exactly. and they're all like talking as like in this very tight community. I just... But I, it, it is the com- perfect comparison with the backdrop and then the backdrop of this film is you have Brad Pitt teaching stars playing themselves. You have Topher Grace playing mm-hmm. himself learning how to play cards, you know? Yeah. So I was like... They kind of hit those backdrops perfectly. I didn't Even how old Topher Grace is, eh? <laughs> like what, in this film, not just like like in general. I always thought he was quite a young man, but he's actually pretty old, eh? Like, I mean, he looked old as shit in Spider-Man Three. He shouldn't have looked as old as he does in that film. Holy crap, that's Topher Grace. That is Topher Grace man. As, as Venom. Boy, that just blew, <laughs> just blew my mind. <laughs> First time I ever saw him. But I love his like head. He's like got real brown hair, and he's got the. Is it a goatee he's wearing or a beard or something? I think it's like a goatee. Yeah, it's yeah something. But, um, that he's was. Back, a, he's in the second one too. Yeah, he is in the second one. Yeah, yeah. not the third for some reason. But, what a shame. Uh, yeah, would no, be cool but, to see him like gambling in that casino or something. The, yeah, he's like losing. He's like slowly losing his mind throughout the trilogy. <laughs> But no, you can see how I've had this trilogy thing on my mind watching the Godfather trilogy and this trilogy in the mm-hmm. last week. So it's it's interesting to see how far the stories extend or go. And yeah. like I said, I would have preferred him to go straight into a Logan Lucky S like same film, different backdrop, different characters. And I think that would have worked maybe, better. Maybe that's come with his career because uh, apart from this like departure of this trilogy, he hasn't returned to a trilogy. I guess he returned to the Oceans franchise, but he did take a completely unique take on it. He didn't mm. come back with Clooney and Brad Pitt. He actually pushed more into the... Well, obviously with Julia Roberts at the head of right, the yeah, other yeah, yeah. half of the Oceans. Um, <laughs> I'm a little confused where that's going to go because as they've shown in the second film she's not really comfortable she's comfortable with doing it but she's not necessarily good at doing it um, right okay uh so i'm going to be very interested on how they make her into this criminal mastermind of of the heist are you talking about julia roberts yeah this one? yeah because her character in the first two is she's the romantic object for george clooney in the first one she's yep. smart we're not disputing she hasn't smart she's sharp and she's well aware of what Danny's doing. Yeah. Um, but as she very Danny much boy. shows in the second one, she's like, yeah, she's a novice at this. They even say she's a novice at it. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how she becomes, you know, the female George Clooney. Well, it's, it's interesting because, like, I remember reading into the film why she's just completely absent from that. And it was very much a real life to, you know, break the immersion of the story. It was very much a real life version of, oh, we don't, we don't get enough screen time. And it was her and one of the other... Um, female leads that was introduced in the second film, mm-hmm. um, there was like, oh, we don't get enough to do in this. So they essentially dropped out of the third one. And I think that's kind of why they wanted to do a female-led version years down the line. Yeah. Uh, it's fair enough. Which, again, honestly, don't even mind. It's better than a Ghostbusters idea. She gets a lot more in the... Se- oh, she gets enough in the second one. I mean, she probably yeah. gets just She gets to play herself pregnant and stuff. And I Yeah, dude, I hated that too. Don't <laughs> it was so dumb. So meta. Uh, and I was like, yeah. no, why is this being meta? It's like, you're fine. He didn't, he didn't know what to do, I think, with the second one. Yeah, I, I agree. And then the third one, he's like, oh, I should probably go back to the, the roots yeah. sort of thing. 
I want to talk a bit about Danny's character, or character arc, but also his motivation. Because from the very first shot of the film, that's sort of what I was looking into. I was like, oh, what's obviously there's they want money. There's a lot of money involved, and that's kind of everyone else's but it's always, motivation. Uh, well, it's interesting that they always want money, but over the three films, it becomes less about money. The money almost becomes just like, I mean, the second one has like is to get them out of. A financial hole, but exactly that, yeah, exactly. They never feel, and then like, the third one's a revenge story, yeah, literally. Like, they don't want to s- steal money for them, they want to do it to help one of their own. So, it's it always almost feels like, yeah, like, like you said, it's it's really yeah, money is not the yeah, I, which I, I like because it, yeah. it could be a little like it's obvious, but it's not, I don't want to say lazy, but it's not as clever. No, it is clever to have George Clooney. Very slow, and then the first shot we do get that hint of his like, you know, oh well, my life, my wife left me, and I kind of went off the rails. And then the interviewer is like, oh well, if you if we let you out of prison, would you do it again? He's like, well, my wife can't break up with me again, so I doubt it. But then of course that's the play that this whole thing is about his wife mm. and winning her back and getting getting uh, the new is it a husband or boyfriend? Like, well, the guy they're robbing. Yeah, the whole thing's about getting him to admit on camera that he would exchange her for his money back. And I was like. That's pretty clever. Yeah, that's really, really clever. I like that. Yeah, it's but, um, it's an it's a it's a good motive, I think, for it. It's a clever, clever way to make the story a little bit more dynamic and interesting. Mm. Um, without and it, yeah, it essentially gives. I wouldn't say it gives Danny much of a character arc, just more a journey. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like like a goal cha- to achieve. Yeah, he doesn't change as a person. He just succeeds in his mission. Yeah, that's a good point. Um. But I think it works in, in the simplicity of it. Like, again, it's a love story disguised as a heist film. It Absolutely. Works. That's, that's works. It. Yeah, it doesn't have to be anything more. I um, like that. It's a pretty good trade-off. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add before jumping into Um, I think I want to talk a tiny bit about Soderbergh himself, because mm-hmm. I've ripped some cheeky facts about him from Wikipedia. Okay. And then we can jump into our highlight scenes. So one of the quotes here I have is that many of Soderbergh's films are anchored by multi-dimensional storylines with plot twists, non-linear storytelling, experimental sequencing, suspenseful soundscapes, and third-person vantage points. Now, a lot of that is sort of in this film, in Ocean's yeah. Eleven. Um, I don't think we... We don't jump around in time very much, do we? I mean, we do when we're like, oh, here's the real scheme that we did in this moment. It cuts back to that moment briefly. Yeah, I but, think um, enough. I think yeah. there's definitely a lot of time jump. There's also time jumping in the sense of, oh... We're getting this team member, and then we're jumping in, and we're getting this team member. And we're yeah, jumping. that's true. This like time the... jumps forward. Mm. Like it's not very like, like the weeks leading up to the heist don't take weeks. They they're very much like, and they're very bang. Whenever they're recruiting people, they're jumping all over to different places. That's true. Or like, yeah, we're seeing them in different circumstances that might have taken place at different times. Yeah, and um, even like when when the guys like, oh well, three people got close to and robbing that the casino. Second one, they're yeah. always like, oh. What is it like? Second, they do that really weird second Tuesday stuff in the second one. Oh yeah, like leading up to the day that the, the debt's owed. I suppose yeah. that's another thing. Hey, about the second one, the font kept changing. Yeah. What the fuck? I don't Sorry. know what happened. I literally don't know what happened with that film. Yeah. There must be a lot some of reason. Weird stuff, but yeah. Another fun fact, which I I was meant to look this up earlier and see which films he did this for, and I I didn't. He def I don't think he did it with either of uh, any of the Ocean's films, mm. but apparently he often serves as his own DOP and editor under their pseudonyms Peter Andrews and Marianne Barnard. So if you see those names in his film credits, that's actually him either editing or shooting his films. This is wonder very why, clever. Wonder why he puts them under pseudonyms. I, I guess it's because. 
Some people would say maybe potentially it could look more amateurish if you give yourself multiple credits. I suppose, but like, I mean, you look at films like Buried or um, Roma, you know, films where the director did do other roles, you know, it's like, I guess you're right. It's it has maybe a, it's a, a marketability fear. thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I do actually get a little concerned when I see, like... Your name come up too many times on the But it comes up credits. eight or nine times, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, don't, don't you? No, I do. And I remember that that was one of the first things we were taught in in like one of our first year classes is have your name appear the least amount of times as possible. Like credit yourself when you deserve the credit. But, and, and that's why I disconnected. I only, even though I did like several roles, you only see my name twice in the credits because I combined as many roles as I could into the, each title card. Yeah. Yeah. I think essentially if you get, if you end up doing like, uh, all of them, like you do <laughs> everything, yeah. Just do a film by, and yeah. then no, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And then just encompass it as much as possible, um, or like you know, uh, like a, a Zeke Morgan Hine film, and then if there are yeah. any p- sub credits like a production designer, you credit them like production design by yeah, and that by but, such and such, yeah. yeah. But like you know, because uh, that way you you're just making it a little bit. Like, you're still giving them the credit, but you, if you've majoritively done 90% of the film's roles, then just say a film by, or, yeah. or like you said, keep it to two, but try and combine as many. Written and directed, or yeah, written, I, directed, produced by. I think one of my cards is, uh, like, cinematography, editing, and producing by, or something like that. Like, I yeah. fit that all into one card. <laughs> yeah, because it, yeah. I think if I saw eight or nine names back to back, I'd be like, first off, bit of an ego. Second off, yeah. this is concerning. Like, <laughs> this is concerning. Because <laughs> as you, but we, if it comes we, at the end, then then you've already seen the film, I guess. Yeah, yeah, true. But let's say like we took Ocean's Twelve, and mm. which we didn't like, and what have we found out that he did? What was it? Editing and uh, editing and DOP. He does every now and then. If you did editing, DOPing, and directing, that makes a lot of sense about that the- film, doesn't it? <laughs> I, think the, the I, mean, the I think it's shot fine, although there are scenes where like they're in a car and the outside's wildly overexposed. And I was like, why? Man, but, I'm going to um, go... The editing was not great in that film. Yeah, that'd be so funny if they're the yeah. ones that he like. I don't believe did. he did it for any of these films. I know he had the same editor for all three films, and it wasn't either of those names. Okay. So there is that. Now, um, I had to jump in again before we do our highlight scenes, but I think one of the... One of the great things about this show, Zeke, is how, mm-hmm. you know, we have our own rising careers and stuff. And I, we, we skipped our careers update today because I think neither of us have much mm-hmm. to talk about. I hope next week I have somebody to tease a little bit. But uh, there's two things I noticed he in terms... He did do the cinematography for Ocean 12. Oh, really? Yeah. He did? Oh, yeah. wow. That's so funny. That makes way more sense now. Well, there you go. Oh, sorry, I dissed him there. You're a good director, mate. Just, yeah. just saying. But again, I think one of the great things about the show is we can talk films and even compare them to some of the things we've done in our own films or mm-hmm. intend to do. Now, I picked out two things that this film does in terms of its scripting or direction or the way it edits scenes that relate to a script that I'm currently writing. If you've been following the last couple of weeks, you know I'm writing a feature script. Mm-hmm. And there's two things that my script does that this film does. And I think this film does it quite successfully. So I wanted to talk a bit about those two specific things and how they relate to maybe an indie film with no names on the call sheet as opposed to a mm-hmm. big film like this. So the first one is the fact that it is an ensemble. There is 11 characters, 11 plus, we need to be following in the story, which is something similar to the script I'm writing where there are nine notable characters that we need to follow. And there is a fear of that, doing character arcs mm-hmm. for all of them, which you mentioned, not most people don't have character arcs. And it, really, 
I guess none of them really do because even George Clooney, he has a goal, but not an arc. Not an per arc. Se. No, I don't think he changes the person. Yeah. No. But of course, you're right. You do remember these characters. You can distinguish each one of them <laughs> for their quirks, for their appearances, uh, because that's a big thing too. I've seen a lot of films where everyone's just like a hip white twenty year old, and I can't make out who's who. Yeah. So there is an element of visuals and looks to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um. But again, this film just has a bunch of all stars. You know, they have a big names, so that does play into it. Like, you know, we call we can call him Danny, but we can call him George Clooney. I mean, yeah. we've already, we've been switching back and forth this whole episode. Time, yeah. So that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. This film does is how it gives everyone enough time to be a notable character and to justify their existence. Yeah. Because if this film had a lower budget, you might have producers being like, "Why do we need 11? Why does it have to be Ocean's 11? Yeah. You know. So I, that I think that's, I think that's that's bang on the money. I think. Mm. Um, Half of the the market marketability with an ensemble cast film is got to be the actors in the ensemble. Yeah. Um. Because if you've only got a few big names, uh, you only need essentially two or three really big names. Like if I if I do compare it to another caper film, okay, which is The Sting from nineteen seventy one, which I would a hundred percent you recommend if you can get a watch of that okay. film. It is okay. excellent. I like that probably one of my favourite films from the 70s. Um, and it has two marketable names. It has Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And mm. um, both of those names were pretty big. Robert Redford was the younger of the two, definitely the one who, definitely more the Brad Pitt to gotcha, gotcha. George to Clooney. George Clooney, yep. Um, but both were m- becoming marketable names of cinema back then. And um, essentially everyone that fall below them cast-wise weren't as big a names most people would just know that as a sort of Robert Redford, Paul Newman co-ed. Sort and of they actually duet. had yeah, another really big film in the 70s, which is what made that film equally as successful, The Sting, which was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm. which, believe it or not, guess who started Sundance? It was Robert <laughs> Redford. Um, so I wonder. I feel what... like you're dropping some deep history bombs today. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think, yeah, you're, you're bang on the money by getting George Clooney and Brad Pitt, who are both... Uh, starting to break into their peaks of their popularity, especially. Definitely, yeah. um, it definitely helps elevate everyone else in the film by just being in it, um, ensemble-wise. So, uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier in in this discussion, this is one of those films that adds to Matt Damon's resume. Um, you have people like Casey Affleck and stuff who have yeah, you know, now gone they're on to in do... this big film with these other actors that yeah. get to work working with Soderbergh specifically. Exactly. So, so I th- yeah. think these types of films are really good, and I think something like Logan Lucky was actually, you know, it it is actually, I mean, it is in a post Star Wars Force Awakens world. I th- yes, it would have been. What's this? Um, well, Logan Lucky would have been. Yeah, I think so. But we weren't quite on the Adam Dra- uh, Adam, Adam Driver, Driver. <laughs> the Adam the Adam Driver hype train yet that we had in 2019. Yeah, um, he's definitely the last few years he's exploded. But Logan Lucky is part of that. I'll I say. think so. I think so. I think um, there was enough big names in there. I think Channing Tatum had become quite a marketable asset, um, especially after Magic Mike. For ironically, sure. yeah, so, for yeah. sure. Um, and I think seeing this guy he was playing, literally known as the guy who played the stripper really well. <laughs> and uh, doing pretty well in 21 Jump Street. Yeah, that as, was a big one too. he was playing sort of the dumb hot guy. So to play a redneck 
was a bit of a, a bit of a change. I mean, he still plays a hot redneck, but he's yeah, yeah. But there is that element of he's playing a father as well. He's playing sort of the husband that needs to prove himself again. Yeah, so there's these all, elements he hasn't really done before. I don't and think. same thing with Daniel Craig going from playing Bond to a redneck with bleach blonde hair. So yeah. there, there were some crazy. really good like departures from what we expect and subversions of expectation mm. with those sort of, th- and it helps them put, you know, it just helps add to their like repertoire and really push them more into that mainstream. And I think he's really good at having a relatively small, he's, he's always been really, really good at, at having relatively small budgets and making the most of them okay. with his ensemble cast. Do you know the budget for Ocean's Eleven? No, but I'm pretty sure for Logan Lucky it was only like twenty million. Oh wow. It was really With small. that cast, yeah. And yeah. and the fact that they're doing it at like the race stadium things are that's a, yeah, that's that's a lot of production. Flying Bird only had like a two hundred thousand. It was really small. Wow, okay. Well while you bring up the Ocean's Eleven budget, I will this actually perfectly segues into our highlight scenes because the second thing I want to talk about in relation so it was 85 to eighty five million for Ocean's Eleven. So oh, it, was okay. big. it was big. <laughs> okay, that was a little bigger. I like that. But in, um the names though. Yeah. So the other scene I want to talk about, and this isn't my highlight scene, but it does relate. Twenty nine million for Logan Lucky. Oh well, there you go. It's really small. That uh, considering the kind of movie he was making, yeah. you think he could have scored a bigger budget than that? Yeah. Maybe he didn't feel he needed it. Who knows? He didn't need it, did he? Yeah. Well, yeah, he he pulled it off, and I think that I think that f- film is equally as good as Ocean's Eleven. Just yeah. putting it out there. It's better. <laughs> oh, oh high flying but a high flying bird only had a two million. Dollar budget. So, so he's 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 all over the spectrum in yeah. terms of budgets. Well, I guess half more than half that budget would have gone to the cast. So, sounds itself. like he's just good with his he's good with his money. Like yeah. I know eighty five million's a lot, but you got to look at the cast, and then you've also got to look at the locations oh, and absolutely. the intricacies of those locations. Even just how many days you would need to cover all of the high stuff and the special effects and that. Yeah, it sounds like he's one of those people that's he doesn't it doesn't feel like he's wasting. Never feels like he's wasting money. I mean, mm. maybe Ocean's Twelve. <laughs> Oh, we're we're just gonna get. We got the opportunity to shoot an Ocean's Twelve, yeah. so we're gonna do it. Um, right. So that scene I wanted to talk about is actually quite early. I mentioned it earlier when the guy they're pitching the heist, and the guy returns with the mm-hmm. oh, there are three examples of people getting nearly done. And then as he's telling the story, there's sort of the comedic voiceover mm-hmm. as he's as it cuts away to these little quick jokes, essentially mm-hmm. these quick little gags, which is something that I've I've experimented with in my script and. It's funny because I feel like when you read that scene, you're not going to like it, Zeke, because it's very stylistically different from everything else mm-hmm. I'm writing in that script. But it is that temptation of like, it's a fun sort of cutaway joke and it, it does explain a bit about character stuff. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was weirdly comparable to that. So it's interesting to see how this film does it. Yeah. yeah. I think it forth. suits in this sort of film's frantic, Absolutely, constantly yeah. moving pace. Like, it never feels like it's stopping this film. Um, it definitely take, fits more in the pace, you're right. Um, and it yeah, it adds to the sort of, you know, like a little bit of the screwball comedy, something that, that works in this film. And he does it also really well in things like Logan Lucky, that sort of mixing of comedy, but also keeping the pace going. Mm. Um, I th- but um, it, it's really, it is really interesting. Also, by the way, Ocean's 12 had the exact same budget. Um, <laughs> just quietly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But <laughs> fuck you, Ocean's Twelve. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's, it's not good. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, no. Um, I I think that's really cool that you can compare that stuff with the you know that script. I don't yeah, think you'll have eighty five just... million dollars to do your script. No, but... I won't. I definitely won't have the cast that they have to do that. But um, I just you know, I mean, again, I think the show is a perfect avenue for us to compare and contrast things that we're doing that we recognize in other films. 
And, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fun little comparison. It's it's a shame I can't talk about it more specifically because I don't really want to get too much into what the script mm-hmm. is yet. Of course, I mean we both know what that's like at the moment. Get yeah. things on the wraps, but uh, it is cool to mention at least. Maybe like five years down the line, we can refer to it and be like, "See, that's that, and that's this, and that's mm-hmm. that." But yeah, all right. Well, I think it's definitely time to move into highlight scenes. Um, what was this yours? Is, this is a tricky one because I had mine down packed. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think this is a trickier one for me because he, these sort of films, especially, have really good blending. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of tough to be like, oh, this scene specifically because mm. of. Whereas certain films have have moments in them, and this yeah, one sort of feels, peaks and yeah, quality. Whereas this stuff. one's always just feeling like, oh, you know, there's. I always like the intro. I'd probably say that kind of the montage of introductions okay. of the various cast. Um, I particularly like the brothers with Casey Affleck and the other brother who are <laughs> driving <laughs> driving a remote control car with oh, a monster truck. Oh, that's a great truck, moment, yeah. Uh, which sort of gets their dynamic. And he just always, drives over the car. <laughs> um, and honestly, maybe even that montage of the failed attempts of robbing, they were very fun. Whenever he, oh, yeah. he, hits commu- like he hits comedy really well in this film that the other... F- films don't have i don't think i think you saying that the third one was stylistically on the right on the money but it felt like it lacked a bit of a heart yeah it, didn't, it wasn't as funny and the tw- the 12th one was like embarrassingly trying to be funny and yeah. it wasn't so, so that's a good point this one has the perfect balance between the stylistic but also the comedy um probably the the riff in between uh, Clooney and Matt Damon in the tripwire sort of scene as oh, they yeah. <laughs> go back and forth. That's really funny um, and feels kind of iconic in cinema. It sort of feels like one of those cornerstones where it's like, hey, I feel like you know this is the first time where these two shared the screen and I don't know if they've shared it since or at least not not often enough. They ever- I can't think of any off the top of my head, but maybe they're both in the laundromat together. Yeah, potentially. I think I'm I'm looking forward to obviously in a post once upon a time in Hollywood world. Mm. Uh, I would love to see Brad Pitt and Clooney share the screen once again. I think that's something I want to see in a sort of cool hangout sense. Yeah, yeah. Too. Maybe would like to see a film with all three of them together again. Oh wait, um, I did I did remember saying earlier that a Brad Pitt and uh, George Clooney are in Burn After Reading together. Yes. I don't think they share the screen, though. No, because of certain things that happen in that film. <laughs> oh, I don't like that film. No, I don't like the film either. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you like to see, wouldn't you like to see Clooney uh, and Brad Pitt saddle I up again? I would love to see that, man. It's, it's Once a Upon a Time film, in Hollywood yeah. 2. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, call it part two. Your trilogies work better that way. Um, my highlight scene has to be, and it actually aligns pretty well with you talking about intros, is Brad Pitt's intro when he's doing the, the poker game with the stars. That's cool. And I mentioned it earlier, but I, I, I thought that was a funny little scene. I like the way he mouths, um, you know, I'm running away with your wife instead of longest hour of my life. I thought that <laughs> was funny to the other guy and they can't hear over the noise and just the, the meta-ness of it. Like, it's a meta-ness that's not as ridiculous as the Bruce Willis scene in the sequel. Yeah. I mean, that was just too far because you have an actress playing herself. So if Topa Grace is Topa Grace and that's him, He's not Topa Grace playing Topa Grace. He is just Topa Grace. Topa Grace. Yeah. And just as Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. Exactly. Like, that's fine, but it's just too ridiculous with the other stuff. So Yeah. That she doesn't look like Julia Roberts, and it's like... Yeah. I was so confused what was happening with yeah. that scene. And I literally had to go on Wikipedia and, like, look up her role in the cast, where it explains the duality of that role, and I'm like, eh, whatever. I mean, it's, it's not a bad premise to, like, pretend to be a celebrity, but... I, I, I just don't know. It just doesn't feel... It's not the right film for it. 
No, it, it also, yeah, it like I don't mind the idea of that meta-ness, but yeah, like it's so tonally deaf mm. in the context of those films that, yeah, can't hard to look past. But yeah, okay, that Brad Pitt intro seems pretty sweet. Yeah, because yeah. I was in the same boat as you. I When I thought about a highlight scene, I looked earlier in the film. Because yeah. that's where you're going to find scenes more so than the heist weaving in and out of existence yeah. and jumping from person to person. So. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well... Ocean's Eleven is definitely out in wide release. There you go, DVD, uh, Blu-ray. I'm going to check right now for Netflix and Stan. It's not on Netflix Australia, uh, okay. but it is in Netflix Germany, where I watch <laughs> the film. <laughs> uh, Seriously, yeah, I love you, Zeke. That's um, so good. Yeah, get oh, a VPN, guys. It's on Stan. Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, Thirteen, and Eight. Or all get a VPN Stan. and watch it in Netflix Germany. <laughs> Thanks, Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, well, Jack, what's new in cinemas uh, this week? We know I have a personal vendetta on, on VPNs. They're, yes. good, they're, they're a good service. That's right. Next week in cinemas. Uh, this is a big week, so hold on to your hats. Uh, Bloodshot since sees Vin Diesel as a rector, uh, resurrected marine enhanced with biotech. Man, I didn't read this as I wrote it because what the hell is this? Who cares? It's going to be trash. <laughs> resurrected marine enhanced with biotech to be the ultimate killing machine in this action actioner. That's not a miss. It says actioner based on the Valiant comics character, and I, I believe I don't think when I checked it was up yet, but I believe from this Thursday the twelfth you can watch it at Hoyts. Can't wait for people to try and defend it like they tried to defend Venom. Yeah, or was it Stuper Studer? What was that? Stuber. Stuber. Yeah, that always looked terrible. Why is anyone? Why is anyone shocked? Yeah. So I haven't seen it, but I just, I, I just <laughs> think it's like it's another one of those people like Vin Diesel. Like, you know, the funny thing is it's like people like Vin Diesel, The Rock, Batista, mm. John Cena. To a lesser well, extent, John Cena, maybe. But... Yeah, well, John Cena's actually been in good things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, I mean, I guess Batista, Dave Batista's also been... Oh, he's in, he's in But yeah, he's cast Guardians. as an... He's cast as an, an idiot. Like, that, it's the equivalent That's of... His character. It literally is the equivalent of Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious or The Rock in Fast and Furious, you know? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. cool. Like, like, or I guess The Rock has Moana where he's a voice actor in... Just I, that kind of guy, whatever his song is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie, but obviously... I know the song. It's the, the same song. thing as all the, the Disney Pixar's. They're all... A lesser extent, good to great, right? That's yeah, the sort yeah, of exactly. the, the branch. But um, yeah, this movie looks. I mean, the, judging by the time of year it's coming out, it's it's going to get trash ratings. It'll probably get maybe make its budget back. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, it just looks like the generic action. Like I just, I couldn't even be bothered checking. It's gonna be the mummy of this it. year. Yeah, that's that's it. It's going to be another one of those situations where they're trying to... Which universe does this fall into? I have no clue, man. Which, which comic universe? Whatever. Oh, it was like Valiant or whatever it was. I don't know. Cool. I wrote uh, it and immediately deleted it after I spoke it into the mic. Ah, fair <laughs> enough. Let's, um, let's yeah. move on. Uh, I Still Believe is an inspire, uh, inspirational biopic drama about a Christian music star, Jeremy Camp, and also hits Hoyts this Thursday. Oof. So, yeah, I don't know. that. If you're into your biopics... Christian biopics. There's your, there's Two your guy. Two points was enough for me this, <laughs> this coming year. Uh, Military Wives takes inspiration from a true story and follows a group of women who, upon waiting for their partners serving in Af- Afghanistan, form a choir and quickly find themselves at the center of a media sensation. I don't know what genre this film's meant to be, but you can catch that at Luna this Thursday as well. Mm-hmm. So, yep. 
I read that and I was like, like I don't know if the media sensation is like bad or good. I imagine the Did media it, sensation it, is they're women. And... Yeah, it does use the word inspirational. So, oh no, no sorry, inspired from a true story. Still a very inspirational, fun time. I imagine it's posed as, but I don't think me or Zeke have much interest in that story. Sure, it'll make its money. Yeah, that'd be, be really marketable in America. There'll be the the male spinoff where it's actually the the husband's in Afghanistan. It's like a giant epic war film with lots of blood and gore. That will be the spinoff. Like it's, it's like it's like oh, you guys like soldier picks. Well, here's the opposite of soldier. Yeah, yeah. Does it does it not feel like? Does that film not feel like just an exploitative sort of like thing for society? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. For society, like, no, they just look Evil. at mar- like what works in marketing. Like they're like, oh, military, uh, women, like it, it's all. And this is a controversial opinion, but I can't say I feel that you're gonna keen. get cancelled, Zeke. Sorry, yeah. be up there with Bo uh, Bo Schwank. I just, <laughs> it feels like a marketing team's exploitative. Right. Now this next one, I actually have a real interesting because it. I couldn't, again, I couldn't tell if it was a comedy or a drama, but I, I, I've watched the trailer, and it's very much a drama, mm. and it could actually be very good. I actually like the look of this. Queen and Slim. Queen and Slim's first date takes an unexpected turn when a policeman pulls a, them over for a minor traffic violation. When the situation escalates, Slim takes the officer's gun and shoots him in self-defense. Now labeled as cop killers in the media, Slim and Queen feel they have no choice but to go on the run and evade the law. That sounds sick. It actually looks really good. It, look, it kind of reminded me of Blind Spotting a little bit, the trailer. Like, very slick and boom, boom, boom. Is it a guy and a girl? Yes. So they're going on a date. And oh, yeah. this sounds real and sick, it, actually. And I thought it was date night for a minute, and I was like, no, this is... <laughs> this looks, this looks cool. It looks sounds, really that cool. That sounds sick. But that's at Luna on Thursday. And I don't know what the deal is with the Australian release of this film, but Jay and Silent Bob reboot. If you're into that, I think there's one... It's screening at Hoyt's on How Wednesday feeling, buddy? the 11th. You want to go see some Jay and Silent Bob? Uh, I I guess this Wednesday I could, but... No, <laughs> Kevin I, you Smith. Know, you know what? I love Chasing Amy. I do. I actually like a lot of Kevin Smith's films. I think he's quite... He lands on a lucky bill for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Clerks I really like, not the second one. I don't know why Jay and Silent Bob get their own film. I just... I can't... I think there's a real cult fan base oh definitely there's people who are like line up to run and that's why I think it's only on for the one day yeah but I actually like the premise it says uh, Jay and Silent Bob embark on a cross country mission to stop Hollywood from filming a reboot based on them that's 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 cute that's clever that's such a Kevin Smith thing to do (laughs) (laughs) I like that and if you're on the Netflix train you can catch the Mark Marlin End Times Fun latest stand up special this Tuesday and also Elite Season 3 comes out Friday the 13th and there you have it Everything coming to cinemas slash Netflix this week. No worries. So well, go. none of those are what we're watching next week on the show. <laughs> you don't want to watch Elite Season 3? No, no. <laughs> or uh, Military Wives. That's, <laughs> dude, that even just sounds generic. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't want to, like, okay. I, I'm all for I'm all for films that are, like, like things like Hidden Figures. Which we'll are... watch Ocean's 8 together. Not, yeah, not I'm military really wise. A film like that, where it's like obviously marketed on the fact that it's oh well, they had all men one, now we're doing an all women. It's it was that we period, get it, we, but it, whereas yeah. like military wives is literally like oh, you know what the United States like empowerment and the military. So here's yeah. a, here's, here's some a choirs. Film. Yeah, here's some choir. Oh, and religious singing. Yes, that's yeah. that's. Literally, like, hitting every demographic for the U.S. <laughs> United States of America. I'm not uh, even joking. I'm, I'm very, I like, like it. Yeah. It just feels like a, a hollow marketing tool. But there are films out there that are. However, 
None of those are the films that we are watching next week <laughs> yeah. on the show. Oh, that's so good. But, Jake, what are we watching? So, next week, we decided to go to a cinema for once. <gasps> it's been a while since we've done that. No. I'm watching a little film called The Invisible Man. Adrian? He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then it was controlling when I left the house. And eventually, what I thought. After staging his own suicide, a crazed scientist uses his power to become invisible to stalk and terrorise his ex-girlfriend. When the police refuse to believe her story, she decides to take matters into her own hands and fight back. Right, this film so... was recently released and is directed by Lee Winnell, who... Of Upgrade fame. Of Upgrade fame, which we have talked about on the show before. We have, yeah. I mean, I really liked Upgrade, and if you want to hear a bit of a peek behind the curtain, you and Music, we've already seen this film. Yeah, yeah, so... we managed to actually catch it just before recording this episode. Because yeah. we well, got kicked out of the room for once. Yeah, well, there was actual <laughs> people here in the room, so we were Shocker. like, hey... Well, we've got a couple of hours to kill. How dare those current students use their equipment? (laughs) (laughs) It should be for us only. Well, much like the Invisible Man, we will be disappearing. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck me. (laughs) Get out of here. Thank you for joining us (laughs) for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. Good point. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week, or will we, with the Invisible Man. (laughs) 